Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode will host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Hey, everybody out there in podcast land, this is Benny and Dan coming to you live from Juanced. We are here at the Interdisciplinary Center of Herzliya with Colonel Udi Eventhal. And uh, Dan, it's it's been kind of an interesting week here. We've done a lot of stuff in terms of uh, trying to talk about Ethiopian Jews. In our previous podcast, we've talked about uh, Judaism. We've talked about what's going on in Israel in preparation for the high holidays in the, in the backdrop of COVID. Of course, we've talked about COVID. But one of the things that we've less talked about is the geopolitical situation in Israel, which is always at the forefront, uh, but in recent months it's taken kind of a backseat to the current events around the world. But suddenly, when you when you least expect it, uh, Israel kind of pulls a rabbit out of a hat and, and something interesting happens. So without further ado, I'll let you introduce our guest. And uh, That's right. So uh, to we it. are super glad to have here Colonel in the Reserves, Udi Eventhal. And uh, it's kind of a a personal privilege for me to host Udi here because, uh, Benny, I don't know if you know this, Udi was my very first commander in the IDF when I joined a long time ago. No way. He was, and uh, I know he, he, he's a very modest man, but uh, you taught me everything I knew, uh, at least at the beginning. You, taught, you gave me my start for sure. And um, so it's an extra special privilege uh, to have you here with us. Udi, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Happy to be here. Happy so, to, to be my ex-commandee. Uh, <laughs> So uh, besides being my first commander in the IDF, in uh, the Unit for Strategic uh, Plans and Policy, in, uh, in the Chief of Staff, Udi is, is seriously the, one of the finest analysts of uh, policy and uh, Middle East affairs that I know of. And he is a senior research fellow at uh, the Institute for Policy and Strategy here in Herzliya at the IDC, where, and I'll say this again at the end, you put out a weekly newsletter and you put out a weekly analysis of events in the Middle East. Uh, but before that, Udi had a 25-year career in uh, the Israel Defense Forces, uh, in very senior foreign policy, uh, national security, and intelligence positions. And uh, he finished up, and actually the last time I bumped into you, Udi, you were the senior intelligence attaché to the prime minister. Uh, it was the assistant for the prime minister, for the prime minister uh, military secretary for intelligence affairs. See only how, only see, the assistant? You see, how, you see how modest he is? You see how modest <laughs> he is? No, but, but it was not my last position. In oh, the, it was not your last yes, position. Yes, my last position in the service was uh, the head of the strategic planning unit in MOD, in Ministry of Defense. I was uh, so a small time position. Mushal, like you say, I don't know the English term for. He was on loan. He was on loan to the, yeah, like, to the like civilian we say in side. Hebrew. On loan to the civilian side, to the Ministry of Defense, where I was two years, very fascinating years, like all my positions in, in the government. You know, I was on an academic course uh, when I was uh, 30 years old. I started my PhD in, the, in Ben Gurion University. 
In what? History of the Middle East. My MA was, uh, I, done it, I, I did it in Paris, in a university that is called INALCO, Institute for Institut National de Langue et Civilisation Orientale, which, which means the Institute for uh, Oriental Languages and Civilizations. It was, when I was there in 95, uh, they celebrated two years of, indi- uh, 200 years of independence. <laughs> Only. Oh, yeah, 200 yeah. years of independence from, from the Sorbonne. They were part of the Sorbonne and it, it's, they split. So, so they've been around for a while. Yeah. And, that, and that's, and I mean, I hear you say that that's not very typical for people from Israel to go study, you know, in French abroad in, in Paris. Uh, yeah, Paris is, that, is, is that a weakness. <laughs> uh, this is the reason I went there to, for, to do the, the, the MA. You so had, was that, was that I, something that, that the, were you in the army at the time and they, no, they no, said, I go was study. not in the, I was not, ah, You're a civilian. Yeah, I was civilian a civilian uh, on an academic course. Uh, after my MA in Paris, I came here, but I came back here. I started to teach in the Open University. I was part of the research and development of courses in the Open University. And I started my PhD in, uh, in Ben Gurion University. And then an offer came from the government, from the IDF. And I chose it. I took it. And this was one of my best decisions because the career I had in the, in the, in the IDF, I could only, I could have not dream such a career, never. I could have never dreamt such a career, so fascinating, so full of uh, adventures and, and this, the influence. Yeah. This was in 95? It was, uh, I, yeah, in 95 I was, uh, I finished my MA and in 90, in, in the end of 96, actually the beginning of, it was December 96, I joined the IDF. Did they think like, I mean, that was like in the time of Oslo and Rabin's famous handshake on the White House lawn. Yeah, with, it with was Yasser a little after. I oh, came... In 95 he was... Uh, no, right. I'm saying it's yeah. it's in that period, in that right period, afterwards. Right. Was there a feeling like no, your actually, job was going to go into this area of of they called it the New Middle East? The yeah, Paris's New Middle yes, East. Yes, but unfortunately, when I joined the, the IDF, it was at the end of '96. We were mm. already in the, the midst old. of of big bus attacks and, and the Hamas uh, suicide bombings, attacks yeah. and Hamas. And in 2000, when I was I was the head of the Iranian desk in the research and analysis division of the of the intelligence of the IDI, mm-hmm. then the second intifada broke. So it was very thorny times, nothing to do with peace. Right. And uh, yeah. the peace process has already collapsed when I joined. And by the way, one of the reasons I chose to go, you know, in the military, in my compulsory service, uh, in the military I was a computer operator. Okay. And then when I was a student, I chose, I started to... Uh, my BA in, in Barilan University for Middle Eastern Studies and French Literature. I told you French, if, if, if um, France and, and the French language is a weakness. And French food? French food also. <laughs> French bouffe, la bouffe. Okay, oh. it's like they say. But, but anyway, uh, one of the reasons I chose, because I was uh, a computer operator and then I was sent, I was, I work, I work, as, when I was a student in Barilan University, I, w- I worked as a computer operator, and I was sent to a programming course, and I started to program. And I cannot see you as a computer programmer. Yeah, me neither. So, but, <laughs> but I, I couldn't see myself as well. I was attracted to the Middle East since was since Middle East news, actualities, actualities since since I was a kid. Where did you grow up when you were a kid? I grew up uh, in uh, Givatayim, very close to the to Tel Aviv, on the border between Givata- Givatayim and Tel Aviv. My childhood is Tel Aviv streets. So, but but since I was like uh, seventh grade, I started to read two newspapers a day. Since then, <laughs> I haven't stopped even more. Yeah, and uh, <coughs> and I I chose Middle Eastern studies. What drove me there was the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I wanted to understand better what is this conflict 
is about, how do we get out from it. I wanted to know more about the Palestinian conflict. This is why I chose Middle Eastern studies. This was the reason. I think a lot of us went that way because of that uh, reason. Yeah. And I got big doses of the Palestinian conflict when I was in service uh, because three of my years in the analysis division of the intelligence was uh, as a, the head of the Palestinian branch. And then for six months, the head of the Palestinian arena, acting head of Palestinian arena before, that, before I moved to the next position. So I got like something like four years uh, dealing exclusively with the Palestinians, seeing this conflict from the inside, problem to see it really from, from a, had, had a close look at it, and it's not encouraging, and maybe we will be talking about yeah. it. So, do, do you have any big, uh, what were your major insights at the time? Did you have anything that, you know, you kind of said to yourself, okay, I thought this going in, and then I just now spent four years studying this from the inside out, from all its details, and now I understand something completely different about the conflict. Do you feel differently about it after than you did yes, before? Yes, you feel you feel that this is an endless conflict, uh, very difficult to solve, and uh, you understand the complexity. And uh, being uh, actually, you know, when I when I think about it, we are now twenty years from the second intifada, September. Yeah. September 2000, it broke, and we are we are 20 years from then. I ask myself, what, that's crazy. What could be the lesson? Holy what could be the lesson learned? You know, we were in the midst of a very promising process, the Oslo process. What and when you are in the in the in service, I think my lesson, my personal lesson learned, uh, which is uh, from from it it is relevant to the Palestinian arena but it's also relevant to the Middle East as a whole, is that you have to control the land militarily, uh, security-wise. You have to have a very good control over territory. Otherwise, otherwise everything collapses. And this is what happened to us, because in 99, you mentioned the Oslo Accord. In 99, the IDF, part of the Oslo Accord, withdrew all the forces uh, from the eight territories, from the Palestinian yeah. cities, we went out of the Palestinian cities, and then we started to get terror infrastructure in the territory we evacuated. Inside the, 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 the laboratories and the suicide bombers and the explosive right, vests, right, right. and the, and then buses started to explode on on our side. And so, because we let go of the military control, and the, what came in inside the Palestinian Authority was too weak. Too weak, right? And the situation hasn't changed. I think dramatically, they still cannot control. The security and defense-wise, they cannot control the territory. And uh, what happened to us? We, buses started to explode on our side. Suicide attacks, suicide bombers, restaurants, cafes, etc. And we had to go back inside. And another lesson learned: once you you let go of the control over the territory, it's very difficult to regain it. Yeah. And it took us something like six, seven years to regain the control. We had to go back inside in 2002. We said it was the, the park defensive suicide shield, attacks, right, defensive yeah, shield. We said we cannot live like that no more. And we came back into the towns and the cities and get, regained the control. And another thing we did was the building the barrier, right. building a fence in order to stop. And even then, it took us like six, seven years to lower the level of terror attacks to a bearable... To the and why is that? Why does it take so long? I mean, to the untrained mind, the person who's sitting in America right now listening to this looks at Israel as this, you know, it's a small country. We're the size of New Jersey, everybody likes to say. We have this massively powerful military and, you know, very small territory. 
why does it take seven years for the IDF to take control of, of the territory in, in that way? I mean, on, if, if you're unin, uninitiated into the world of military and security, that seems strange. Like, what, seven years it takes to, to, to you know, advance and take over such a small amount of land that's, that gives credence and support to people's mindsets that say we should never give up the territories because, you know, in any sort of a future conflict, we wouldn't be able to, to take them back over. So what's, I mean, what's going on? It's very difficult militarily. It's it's very difficult to do it militarily because your enemy or your challenge is uh, rooted inside a civilian area, and the American met it, countered Iraq, yeah. that problem in Iraq, and in it, they couldn't get it into control after uh, they went there from 2003 to 2011, right. and they they couldn't get it into control. At some extent, yes. And so it's very, uh, those kind of uh, urban, th- urban theater uh, operations are very difficult to do. Your enemy is entrenched in, yeah. in the civilian neighborhood and IDF, it's not, I mean, it's not a cliche. It, it's, a, it's a moral. In the end of the day, it's a moral military. This is not, the, Russia, not, this is not to, the Russians in Chechnya, right? We're it's not, not the like, Russians in Chechnya. We're not plowing neighborhoods down. Right. Yes. And in order to save casualties, for example, in Nablus, in offensive shield, yeah. this is our, the current, current chief of staff, General Kohavi. He was the commander right. of the Nablus Brigade. I think it was the Nablus Brigade. Uh, he was the commander, and he he chose to go through the walls of the of the house of the of the houses instead of the in the streets in order to prevent friction yep. uh, in the midst of uh, and, and and to avoid snipers. Because in the end, snipers and and also to avoid think, uh, to avoid civilian casualties. Because in the end of the day, if you have too many civilian casualties and you are a democratic country with a moral uh, military, you lose the battle. So. Yep. This is part of the complexity. Now, it doesn't matter. I mean, the size. Look, Gaza, look at Gaza, for example. Gaza, it's a very, it's like uh, 49 kilometers wide, uh, long, and then between 10 and to 14 kilometers wide. Depends north or yeah. You, south. you can drive. You can drive north to south in an hour if, if you know. If but there it, wasn't to, to to have an operations inside when they have booby traps and they have the and the t- not only offensive tunnels but defensive yeah tunnels. tactical tunnels to move yes, around. Yes, I always right. joke that uh, when one day when they will, I hope one day when Gaza is prosperous, they will have a plan to build to build a uh, metro. <laughs> it will take them less <laughs> than uh, because all Gaza is is dug under yeah. underground. So it's very difficult to have operations. Uh, yeah, the, the point you made about democracies, right, and um, that's something that you see throughout history, in, is that something when you are now in the age of, of popular democracies, right, and you need public support in order to wage war, especially protracted wars, ensuring, A, that you're minimizing casualties on your side, okay, but also on the other side, right? Uh, democracies don't like to harm uh, civilians on the other side. It, it's something that you don't want to do. So... Uh, a Russia in Chechnya can do that and get away with it to a certain extent that we can't, and we don't want to. Right. And, and, and you know that's what makes these kind of wars so protracted because you don't want to go in and just kill everyone. If you could, if you, you physically you can do it, but but that's not something you want to do. It's not something your society wants to do. You know, uh, we were in the army, we sent our kids to the army, and we don't want them to be a part of this. Um, at least most of us don't. So um, it, it, you know, it makes it uh, a lot harder. To, to just go in and finish these kind of uh, right, it, it, it almost it's 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 like people who who claim that Israel's involved in a genocide of the Palestinian people. It's it's almost laughable. It's ridiculous. It's like if you really wanted to commit this country to a genocide, we can send in you know all the tank columns that we have, have and, and of, take you, care you of it in like two days. More, you have much <laughs> much much more force that you can use than the force that you use right. that you actually use because of those con- constraints. Right, right, exactly. Uh, but but what 
what do I, th- I mean, my lesson learned from all those years is that it starts with security. Because even if we have, currently it is very distant. I mean, we don't have leadership on both sides that could promote a viable peace process. And we have uh, many other political problems, etc. But even if we had these uh, chances, I mean, security is the basis because if you don't have security, any arrangement that you... And the Oslo Agreement is an, is an example. It collapsed. Why did it collapse? Because of security. If you don't have very strong security presence and the arrangements on the ground, uh, ro- very robust, you are bound to fail uh, with your political processes. And, and if you take... I said it's not only a lesson for the Palestinian arena and for Israel. It's a lesson for the Middle East. Look what happened in Iraq, for example. I mean, we, we forget, uh, until very recently, Daesh, ISIS, control huge chunks of territory around the Middle East. Right. Why? Because you, don't ha- you didn't have special, uh, you didn't have a strong enough uh, security presence, military security right. presence on the ground, Iraqi presence. I mean, the American, they trained, they trained the, the Iraqi forces, and once, and, and few guys with conviction, with machine guns on, on pickup trucks, they defeated all those comp- all those uh, very sophisticated military right. apparatuses and the army, Iraqi army. So this is a lesson learned that we need to you, remember. You can't leave power vacuums in the Middle East. No. no power vacuums. And this is what reality taught us. So this is one of the lessons learned I took from my positions, different positions in the, in the military. Does experience ever leave you hopeful? I mean, do, do you see, you know, you have some people who like to say, the Middle East will never have democracy. The Middle East, or is it just kind of an evolutionary phase that they're just, you know, some regions in the world have advanced politically in, at different times and at different paces. Do you ever have hope uh, that this region will be more than what it is today, that will be able to have kind of, not necessarily Western, but but something that resembles liberal democracy at any point? I, I don't see liberal democracy uh, evolving in the Middle East uh, in the foreseeable future. I don't think liberal democracy is the right is the right model or the right way to rule uh, the Middle East. I think there is a tension between liberal democracy or democracy on the one hand and stability in the in the region on the other hand. And I think for the current the current situation is very unstable. We are in the midst of the upheaval that has started in 2011, and I don't think it ran its course yet. When the security environment is so unstable, you don't want to experiment democracy. And uh, right. uh, but but you prefer stability. I mean, if democracy could have promoted under the current circumstances, could have promoted uh, stability in the Middle East. I would have said, I would have, I would have said, let's 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 promote it. But this experiment failed. Uh, I mean, the United States. This was uh, the this was the neo the neocons. The neocon thinking. The right. neocon thinking, idealistic thinking, was that uh, we will create some kind of democracy in Iraq. It will be expanded right. all over the region. Iraq is at the heart of the Middle East. I'm hearing you say this, and it's interesting when you when you reflect upon what's going on right now in Western democracies, in, in, in the Western democracies themselves, and comparing that to what I remember of that time, of, and even if I go before that, to when the U.S. first invaded Iraq in the second uh, Iraq war, I think that was in 2003. Three. You know, it was, let's take regime change and bring a democratic form of government to this culture in the Middle East. Right. And, and that was a heart of and it doesn't work. thinking and, at the, in the Bush administration, right? right? And, the, the foreign policy minds in the Bush administration. And to, and to, and to give that the context that you just said, uh, or to, to bring that into the contextual model that you just said, it is so true that demo, 
democratic form of government works in a place where people hold democratic values, but the values seem to need to be there before the democracy can provide stability. This is this is one. Second, you know, this all talk about democracy. It's is talk uh, democracy in the Middle East is so artificial. Let's let's talk. Let's take for a second what's going on in the Middle East, and I mean. To talk about democracy right now is like detached from it's reality. Laughable. It's laughable. Right? It's it's like artificial. Uh, what let, let's let's talk about what's going on. I said the the regional upheaval or the Arab Spring. You cannot really call it a spring. It's not a. I call it the Arab Winter. Arab Winter, <laughs> or, or uh, we had the term in the in the intelligence. We called it mid um, in Hebrew taltala. In English, maybe upheaval. Upheaval. We yeah. called it the regional upheaval. I think regional upheaval is still running its course. Uh, it was not exhausted yet. And you can uh, many many people look for uh, models or for uh, patterns in the evolvement of this Arab Spring or upheaval. I, I don't. It's very difficult to have one model. But look what's going on on the ground. On the ground, you have few countries that are still. Being upheavaled, okay? Right, they're still in the midst of the upheaval. Right? Midst of the upheaval, okay? Yeah. And you take, this is uh, Yemen, still Libya. In a, Yemen's still in a civil war. Libya's still in a civil war. Syria to some extent. Right. And then you have the more stable countries that did not experience a very strong, uh, they were not shaken. Everybody was shaken, but they were not uh, upheavaled, okay? In a way. And they have which Which ones, which countries the... It's the Gulf countries, and the, especially the monarchies, even Jordan. In the Gulf, they have better conditions uh, to cope with the, 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 the instability that the situation created. It's called throw money at it. <laughs> yes. I mean, to buy some industrial yeah. quiet with the money that they have. Now they have different, and this is related, we'll talk about it later, to the, to the agreement with the UAE, but... Now, because of the of the economic uh, crisis uh, uh, exacerbated by the by the COVID and oil oil crisis, they have less money to uh, cushion uh, the shocks of the public mm. uh, or to oil the public. They have less money to oil the public and buy uh, quiet. This was the deal. This was the contract between the rulers in the Gulf. Saudi Arabia, UAE, other uh, monarchies. Uh, the, the Faustian bargain, right? Yes, it's the bargain. Now they have less money to pay to the people, so they are more vulnerable and more edgy when it comes to their stability. You take, for example, Saudi Arabia. In 2018, they forced a tax, a value-added tax of 5%. Recently, they tripled it to 15%. This is uh, unprecedented. Yeah, something that they never knew before. Because never did before. Uh, so so they, are, they are now fighting for their stability because the, the, the situation is more tense, the environment is, more, is less stable, and they have to cope with it, especially uh, and in Jordan. It's a very good example of a monarchy that didn't experience very strong upheaval but had to fight in order to keep stability. And you have, and these are the most interesting, in the midst of the Middle East, you have three more countries that are fighting for the narrative or that, that, that they are evolving uh, and fighting. Uh, I mean, the people are fighting to change the, the country. Uh, they call it, they are, I mean, there is a fight for the hearts of mind, but internal fight. Within about the how the image, the, the image, what what will come out of the country, and these are three battleground. I call it the battleground. You have okay. you have the more stable, you have the less stable on the other side, and in the middle you have the battleground for the image uh, and the future of the th- of three countries. This is Lebanon, this is Iran, and this is Iraq. 
Interesting. And uh, and they are fighting. There there is an internal fighting inside. What happened to them? First of all, they they experienced economic collapse. Lebanon is a very is very uh, very tinder good. Box. Huh? It's a tinderbox, right? I mean, I mean, it's it's ruined. Like like I mean, according to the uh, the intelligence unit of the Economist, they are going to uh, by the end of 2020 this year. Say more about more than seventy five percent of the population will go below the poverty poverty wow. line. Holy shit! And so and that's right on this our is, border. This is that's a, just what we need in the Middle East: another right. country of really pissed off unemployed people that have no food. <laughs> okay, so this is a story also in Iran. But in, in the three countries, you have, uh, I mean, in Lebanon is 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 it's extreme, but not too, uh, but but also in uh, take Iran for example, in Iran in Lebanon. The real and the lira crashed. Right. Crashed in Lebanon, 80% it lost. In, in Iran, before the COVID, uh, inflation was almost 50%. Right. Now it's more probably. So, uh, so there's, there's two interesting things I just I picked up uh, as you were talking here. So first is that the, the regimes that have been most stable throughout this upheaval, right, have been the monarchies. And it's interesting. It's interesting yes, it because, because, you know, uh, that's the most traditional form of rule, traditional form of government in this part of the world. And it's something that, you know, at least in the West, they often look down on with disdain. They say, how can you be so backwards? This is, you know, uh, a medieval kind of, of, of ruling. And yet they are the countries that are the most stable. Um, they, I don't want to call them democracies, but they're not. they're not at all. But the people on a day-to-day level do seem to have a decent amount of freedom, certainly religious freedom. Um, Udi's thinking about that for a second. He's like, yeah, no, I, I, do, I do not agree. They don't have so much freedom. You don't like think, you think in Morocco or in some of I the mean, Gulf Morocco, states? I mean, Morocco is most, is, but Morocco is in the fringe. It's in the fringe, but so are the Gulf states, right? The Gulf states and Morocco. Um, Saudi Arabia, okay, Saudi Arabia is not. Is it that they, they have freedom or that day to day they don't ask for too poli- much and they know how to stay in line? I think that's part of the, that bargain. I mean, take no? women. You, if you ask women, yeah. also in the UAE or also in Saudi Arabia, they, only recently they got permit to drive. I mean, they, they also in the UAE. In the in the UAE they drove, but but in the UAE they cannot decide when they get married. They need the approval of the family and the brother, and to inherit they have inheritance problem. Many problems that we don't. I mean, women drive in the in in Saudi Arabia. It was big news. Right, but but underneath. This uh, driving uh, nice images. There are a lot of rest- many many restrictions on women, on women, on journalists. Uh, I mean, to criticize freely sure. the, the the ruling family in in all those monarchies, it's is not an easy thing to is not an easy thing to do. I didn't mean so, to imply that they're free countries in any way, but but it it seems at least from the outside that the day to day is. You know, leave the government alone. Don't criticize the regime, and you can go ahead and live your day to day life. And it seems to to be a little better than the rest of the Arab world. But maybe that's just the image I get here in Israel. I think this is maybe that's image. a, a function of the stability. It well, is. I mean, I mean, when you economic activity is is pretty is relatively open in these countries. Right. You you can have business. You can do business. You can do uh, the economy is is, is like moving, and uh, but on the personal level or personal rights. Uh, are still do, they have still a very long way okay. to go uh, in order to meet the criteria of a democracy. Okay, okay? so sure. they, they this is these all those regimes are autocratic regimes. Right. 
I mean, even inside the Saudi family, the ruling family, people are, are getting arrested because they think that they, they challenged the, the leadership. Right. They challenged uh, Didn't, uh, Mohammed bin, uh, yeah, MBS, right? Salman. Mohammed bin Salman, MBS. Didn't he put uh, hundreds I mean, of people from the royal family in a kind of the Hilton prison? In the Ritz. Or the Ritz, the time, right, right, In the Ritz. Right, yeah. But recently, the, the previous... Uh, the previous uh, crown prince, uh, Naif, Mohammed bin Naif, he put him recently, he was in a home arrest for a many, for, for many, for, for few years now, and recently he was arrested again, and some other uh, very important figures from the family are arrested. Uh, so even inside the, the family, so think if you are a simple citizens, yeah. a simple citizen. Also, I mean, if you, you can compare it even to Iran. I mean, Iran, political dissidents in Iran, uh, for example, in the Green uh, Green Revolution of 2009, you had two figures who challenged. Uh, right. the, there was uh, Musavi Lari, and there was uh, Karuvi, who was the, the the speaker of the of the Majlis of the of the Parliament at the time, and they challenged the regime. And till this day, since 2009, they are in a home arrest. They're still under house arrest. House wow. arrest. So, yeah. um, but but I mean, all those. I mean, in those three countries, so we, they had a very very challenging. Uh, economic uh, situation, even an economic collapse. Also in Iran, in Iran also the poverty, the poverty rate is uh, almost 50%. And in all three countries, they could not give the, I mean, the government did, didn't function. Right. I mean, government could not give the services. It's very clear in, 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 in Lebanon right now, uh, you have places where you have four hours of electricity a day, like in Gaza. Really? Uh, bec- yes, because uh, because uh, their uh, electro- uh, electricity system has collapsed totally uh, with after many years of corruption, and they lose like uh, more than one billion dollar a year, and they cannot they cannot supply the demand is, of, for electricity. Is the, there the, is there a commonality? Um, you know, in Iran obviously is the leading exporter of, of radicalism in the region, and, and I want to get into Iran. Um, in a little bit here in depth because there's a lot going on with Iran. But it, it's the leading exporter of uh, radicalism. Um, it gives about a billion dollars a year to Hezbollah every year. Uh, has pumped billions into Syria and the Syrian civil war. And, and the citizens, many of whom are educated, are largely aware of it, right? Lebanon is also relatively, uh, at least the perception, that it's a relatively educated country that's kind of been hijacked by Hezbollah, yes. right, who is insisting on continuing... <coughs> The fight against Israel um, spent the past few years deep in Syria fighting against other Arabs and Muslims. And there's a lot of, it seems to be that there's a lot of frustration in both countries against the radical elements of their country. Yes, it's true. Is, it's, is, is that, it's is true. that a part we'll get, of it? Yes, it's true. But they have, it's true, but they have a bigger problem to begin with. Let's, let's go just for a second to the uh, deep dive. Yeah, please. What, what's, and then we'll get to this issue of the, of the radical axis and its activity around the, around the Middle East. So like I said, very dire economic situation. Infrastructure is collapsing. Services are not, uh, are not given to the people. Uh, in Lebanon, you cannot, uh, you, you cannot uh, withdraw dollars from your bank because they have a li- liquidity crisis. And, and, and also in Iran, Iran, the air pollution, garbage, Many services that are not uh, being uh, supplied to the people. So, so this and and of course the unemployment. Unemployment right. is like uh, forty, fifty, and now with COVID, more than sixty percent in all those countries: Iraq, etc. Iraq, Iran, and Lebanon. 
and other places around the, around the region, especially when it comes, those numbers are um, youth unemployment. So right. the youth is educated and unemployed, and there is a lot of uh, anger underneath the surface. Uh, so this is uh, the, on the economic and, and infrastructure. Secondly, this, what, what we saw in the last year is this economic grievances becoming political grievances, turning into political grievances. And this is a very interesting process. Uh, also in Iran, I mean, uh, in you Lebanon... You've had protests in Iran for the past, uh, over the past year. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. We had, you, had, you had, in 2018, it was pure economic. And then in 2018, what, what was special is they started to, uh, to sound uh, also political slogan. They didn't want the elite, they want, didn't want the, the, ruling, the ruling elite to go uh, and to, to live their lives. This has started in 2018. In 2019, there was the gasoline. You have many similarities. You know, in Lebanon, it was, I mean, the trigger for the, in, in November uh, or in October, the trigger was uh, they wanted to put some text on WhatsApp conversations. And then, and then it erupted in Lebanon with masses taking the streets, youth with the, you know, the festival. It was, it was not violent in, in October last year. In, at the same time, in Iran, exactly the same time, Iran, they, they raised, or they cut subsidies for the gasoline and they raised the gasoline prices. I don't remember, I think they wanted to triple it or to double it, but it was significant raise in the, in right. the gasoline and people, took the streets. Violent. I mean, uh, according to the numbers uh, in those riots, the gasoline riots last year in Iran, uh, the more conservative number is uh, 250 or 300 people died in the streets from the security forces. And uh, the American administration says it's 1,500. And also in Iraq, at the same time, in Iraq, because of the the economic situation, it erupted into uh, and and also in in Iraq, uh, we are talking about around 300 people died in the in the protests. What were they protesting in Iraq? Oh, the economy, the they economic, come. the economic situation. It started with the economic situation and the problems, and it was pre-COVID uh, protests. And uh, what was interesting in Iraq, in Iraq, they were, the, the, the protests were very, uh, they had a lot of uh, anti-Iranian sentiment. Hmm. I mean, uh, the, right, because the Iran's kind of taken over as the Americans left, right? Sort of. And then, I mean, it started because of the economic uh, situation. I think in Iraq, they, they, I don't remember the trigger, but I think it was, I'm not sure it, if it was the bread, but it, there was an, an economic context and it erupted. Uh, many casualties. I mean, the security forces were very brutal in all three, uh, ca- less in Lebanon, because in Lebanon, last year, it was not violent yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the first wave, I'm talking about three waves in Lebanon. Now we are experiencing the third one after the explosions in Beirut. But um, so, so this was one. And then, like I said, it turned into a political Grievance, a political political demand, economic unrest became political context, became with a political context. And what do they in the th- all three countries? Like I said, the battleground in the Middle right. East. All three countries, the demand was to change the system. You have in Lebanon, you have the uh, et- ethnic system. Okay, the Taif agreements and the, the the yeah, they have a weird system. Are you familiar with this, Benny? That um, right? What is it? The, the president is Christian. 
the then yes, always to, has to come not, from the Christian community. Always has to come from the Christian right. community. It's not only the, the it's not only a Christian a Christian president, Sunni prime minister, Shiite. A speaker of the parliament right, right, right it's much wider in Lebanon it goes also the you parliament have, you have the Druze the parliament the, the parliament is divided between Muslim and Christians uh, 60 it's 128 64 and 64 and also inside the communities I mean inside the religion you have different uh, different communities different streams of uh, like like uh, Maroon Christians right. like Orthodox Christians it's also divided every sect Every religious sect has a number of parliament deputies <laughs> that is set in advance. It's very, I mean, it's, it's all over the place, but. Are there any problem- Jews? Are there any Jews at all still left in Lebanon? No. I think they all left. No, no. Yeah. Back in the day, was it, were the Jews in the Lebanese government? I mean, the, in the government. Like, was it before Israel? In Lebanon, it's the ethnic political system. Yeah. In Iraq, it's the same, it's the same. Okay. Iraq is the same. The, the system is uh, is also they have the same less less detailed rules, but the same. I mean, the 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 Sun- president has to right. be Kurd. Sunni Shias and Kurds. The, the, right. the prime minister is Shia, etc. It's they have also so the demand started to dismantle this this uh, ethnic political system. Do, do and they in have, Iran, do they, do they have specific demands of what they want? In, we'll in get place? to that. I okay. want to. I want to to continue with Iran. Yeah. Iran. They have the religious system. I mean, the what the the, the 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 religious revolution, the Islamic revolutions. The idea of the revolution is that the clergy. I mean, we like we like This is right. the this is the uh, the principle set by Khomeini. That the idea is that the clergy is in control of politics and is is controlling the regime. And government. The government is led by the Islamic clergy, or the, the, the ulama, or the, the, the imams, yeah. or the ayatollahs, okay? So the people, they want to get away with the, with this, uh, Islamic rule. Uh, so in both, in the, all the, all, all three countries, they want to, uh, they want to get away with the political system. And the third, the third characteristics of this battleground, is and, and you have many similarities between the three countries, which is very interesting. The third one is an intergenerational struggle. Uh-huh. Okay, you have the young. Uh, you have in Iran, it's the it's the young people who were born after the revolution. After the revolution. They don't know the revolution. They hate the revolution, and they, they they don't commit. They they are not committed to the revolution. In in uh, in Lebanon, it's the people who. Didn't leave the horrors of the civil uh, civil war in Lebanon, and were born. Many of them were born after '89, the Taif Agreement that divided. So they are not committed to, and they, they are not afraid to go back to. I mean, they, they didn't know the horrors of the of the war. They heard about him, but they are less sure. frightened by them. And in Iran, uh, and, and in Iraq, uh, this is the generation who didn't leave the autocratic rule of Saddam Hussein. Yeah, right, they don't remember Saddam. And, they and don't the remember Saddam of, and the horrors, and yeah. uh, and so they they feel free. What 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 is the and the third characteristic is is like what I called a clash based social class based struggle. It's 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 the struggle against the corrupted elites that took the money from the people in order to. To steal the, the money from sure. the people and to get to to be to get enriched from the the political system, the ethnic political system that started in order to create some balance and some stability, 
became very corrupt elites. For example, in Lebanon today, if you are a young Christian living in uh, the southern side of Lebanon, which is controlled by the Shiites, it's very difficult for you to find a job. Uh, and if if you find a job, it's it's the in the government, for example, you have to be connected some way to the ministry that is controlled by a Christian minister from your sect in order to get a job. Otherwise, if you are not connected, and it it all go it all goes. And this is what they they were the 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 young people of Lebanon are fed up with this corrupt system that uh, that doesn't judge you according to your skills and education, but according to your uh, sectarian. So- so given that reality and given, given the fact that unemployment is rising above 75% with ridiculous inflation and, yeah, and, and dysfunction, poverty, yes, yes. poverty above 75%, can we expect in the near future mass civil unrest and uprising in Lebanon? Yes, yeah, so, so this, is, this goes to your question yeah. uh, before if they have an alternative, what do they suggest? Right. And the problem, especially in Lebanon, the problem they don't have an alternative, I mean also in Iran, in Iran, the opposition is not organized. It lacks leadership. Yeah, it is very problem, divided. Right? You, have, you have to have leadership. You have to have coherence. You have Leader- to have leadership problems. In Iraq, maybe we're starting to see some leadership, but, but they don't have leadership. They don't have a, a clear view of what do they want to achieve, what alternative system. They don't have the force. I mean... All those sects are, they have some kind of militias. The most, the, I, mean, I mean, the most strong one, uh, the strongest one is, uh, is Hezbollah's uh, militia and, and the military. Hezbollah is the only, according to Taif agreement of 89, all the sects had to, uh, dis- to be dismantled from their uh, weapons. Uh, the only sect that was not, the only organization is Hezbollah. Uh, that was not dismantled uh, because it was too strong to be dismantled. Nobody can dismantle. This is the same problem. This is the problem that still still have today. It still plagues them today. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And uh, so, so they they don't have the force to change the system. In Iran, the security forces are very strong. Yeah, are very capable, and they uh, crash any expression of opposition. Right. Uh, same in Lebanon and uh, to some extent in Iraq and. Uh, no alternative system, no leadership, very divided uh, opposition. It is divided also, is divided uh, sectarianly uh, in all, all those places uh, and religiously, and religiously speaking. Uh, so they, it's very difficult for them to find, the, 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 uh, to bring about an alternative. And this is, uh, I call it, uh, especially Lebanon, but to some extent, Iran maybe is a different case, uh, to some extent Iraq too, Entrapped. I call the Lebanon. I call it a country entrapped. I, I published few uh, few papers that with this title about the entrapment uh, of Lebanon. Why it is entrapped? Because the the people understood, the people understood that the current way of government cannot supply, uh, cannot cannot give them a decent life, a decent quality of life. Uh, they understand. So the, the, the system has, uh, it's broken. It's a broken, broken system. Right. went bankrupt. Nobody believes the system and nobody believes the system can supply what he needs. I mean, the, uh, the citizens. On the one hand. On the other hand, they don't have any alternative. They don't right. have enough power to bring about an alternative. So what, which, which means that we are bound for the foreseeable future to leave this instability inside Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon is becoming a failed state. Uh, which is not good news for Israel because sure. we have only already one failed state 
in uh, on our northern border, which is Syria, and now we have a second one. And uh, when you have a failed state, it's very difficult to deal with. You know, it it sounds like. I remember so, when so you, where, where you see yeah. where, when you go when you when you dive in to the situation in the Middle East <laughs> and you see what's going on there and now you are talking to, with me about uh, Jeffersonian democracy. No, I not mean, Jeffersonian. Not Jeffersonian. <laughs> but I mean, the, I mean the. I mean, the distance yeah, between the current situation sure, sure. and democracy is so... So I, I think we need to start with stability, first of all, to find some arrangement that will give stability. And then under st- it, it goes back to our previous discussion about security. If you don't have stability on the ground... Yeah. I think it's very difficult for democracy to thrive do you think under in, current situation. Do you think in this region, at least at this point in time, it helps to have <coughs> ethnic and religious homogeneity? I, it seems like the countries that are most homogenous. Uh, yeah, the, no. The, it seems that the countries that are most stable um, are the ones that are very clearly one either ethnic group, religious group, linguistic group. Um, you know, the ones that are ninety percent, eighty percent Sunni or Shia, right? Um, or the ones that are right Turk or Kurd or or not Kurds because they don't have a country, but. Um, you know, the ones that are the most stable are the ones that are the least diverse in this region. It has to be, it, it has to be checked. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm just thinking out loud. Yeah, maybe, 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 it's, maybe you're right. Uh, but you have some example of, uh, of uh, states that uh, lived through uh, this upheaval and kept uh, relative stability. Uh, you take Jordan, for example. Jordan is not homogenic. You have, uh, so huh? it's mostly Sunni Arab, even if it's divided yes, between Palestinians it, and Bedouins. It's yes, but I mean, you have uh, probably probably sixty percent or majority of Palestinians, right. and the regime and the government is controlled by the Bedouins. And uh, so, I'm not sure. It's and you have many refugees from Syria. I mean, Iraq, it's, it's Iraq like and, it's yeah. like it's like big part of the population. It's like twenty five, twenty five. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, about 20-25% of the population are still some kind of uh, of refugees. Right. And so, I mean, but if I have to imagine uh, the Middle East in the long term, I don't exclude that, that there will be some, because of, this is related to what you said, there will be some kind of dismemberment of uh, of the of the of the national model. We have we have national states right. in the Middle East since the Saxe Pico, since right. uh, the, the the post uh, the post uh, First World War in the Middle East. Uh, the model is the nation, national model of national countries, nation states uh, of nation that, states that don't really reflect anything uh, other than maps drawn on a line by foreign. Powers that were here. Yes, but those lines, those lines are with us since uh, with us. So uh, some of them one hundred years. Some of them held, and some of them didn't. I mean, again, the monarchies held, but they're also more homogenous. And the ones that were, I mean, all of them held since in the in the last all the all the states that were were born after the first and second world war are still with us. Even Syria, that was uh, that was thorn with the with the. And devastated by a very cruel uh, civil war with uh, more than half a million casual, half, right. half a million victims, uh, more than half millions, and uh, it's still uh, Syria, and, it, and its borders are not contested. And if you ask the superpowers, they will talk, the Russians, they will talk about uh, national uh, territorial integrity of Syria. Uh, 
But I'm, I'm starting to ask myself, because of this deadlock in the Middle East mm. uh, that we have described here, if at some point there will be this, this model or the national model, national state model is not going to be contested in some way or another. In Lebanon, for example, you know, like Shiites. In Iraq, you have uh, the Kurds in the north, Sunnis in the, in the, sure. in, in, in the center of the country and the west and, and the Shiite south. Um, Can you see them forming kind of like a Yugoslavia splitting type model? I don't know. I don't know. But it, it, this is a scenario. This is this is a scenario. And uh, at some point, uh, people imagined a solution for Syria, for Syria, a confederation or federation. Right. A I've solution of a federation in Syria, where uh, every every part of the federation it will be uh, supported by a different superpower. Uh, for example, the uh, the regime will be will be based in the on the shore in, in Damascus, uh, the central regime, and will be supported by Russia. And uh, the Sunnis uh, will be supported by the United States. And uh, so you can imagine, or the Arab states, the Arab right. Gulf states. So people started to play to toy with the idea of of a federation that will that could uh, solve the problem. Uh, in Syria, those ideas uh, are not uh, faded out because uh, the Assad regime took control over most of the of the country uh, and decided the insurgency, if if you will, uh, decided the, the opposition and decided the war. And uh, Assad is in control over over most of Syria right now, except this pocket, the Idlib pocket in the in the west, and a little bit. Uh, some Kurdish, uh, some Kurdish control in the, the east, in, in the in the northeast, in the north, in Rojava. Yeah. So, uh, so, so you mentioned, but, 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 but I don't know to 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 imagine the region in in, in some years from now. Uh, it has to be thought of because different scenario can evolve. This different scenarios can evolve because the the this is why I'm among those who think this this upheaval in the region hasn't. Uh, ran its course. Yes. Some all, people right. say. Some people say it did. I mean, it was decided. The region is relatively stable, more or less. I Do mean, you think that we're in the beginning? I think Still? we are in the midst, midst of it. But it hasn't ran its course, and we are expected to some uh, uh, to some more uh, uh, surprises and abrupt strategic changes in this unstable region. And this is part of uh, being a planner. Yeah. In the in the IDF or in the government, uh, this is part of the challenge. When Israel when Israel looks at the map around us, and it you know classifies countries as less or more stable than others, and how we must contend with those, are there any surprises that people would look at and say, "Well, that's we didn't think that." So, for example, does Israel see the Saudi monarchy as being very stable for the long term? Do they see? Okay, uh, good question. Do they see the 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 the, the, the Hashemites as being there for the you know? foreseeable future yeah. or is there something where it's like it would come to people as a surprise like no there's a contingency for what happens if we, we, you mentioned the Saudi Arabia for example sure I mean I always say Saudi Arabia is a black box nobody knows exactly what's going on inside is it stable you ask different uh, different uh, experts they, you will get different answers you ask for example there is Bruce Rydell from the Brookings yeah. Institution you read his uh, he says uh, this is a very very fragile situation inside the uh, the Saudi uh, royal court and uh, nobody knows exactly what's going on inside 
and how it how it can evolve Sudden, one day suddenly a few months ago suddenly few very important figures are are being arrested by MBA, MBS uh, and so and then you understand that something happened underneath the ground that that you didn't uh, and, didn't and, really feel and that's interesting they're really good at keeping I like that the the visual use the black box right we really don't know what's going on and, and it's you know something that uh, a lot of people have tried outside to get into and it's 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 very hard to understand how the royal family dynamic works, the political dynamic in Saudi Arabia. It's, and it's and you, if you can easing. add to that, I mean, it's obvious that MBS has some some people who are uh, trying to challenge his leadership, and uh, everybody waits in a way that uh, the King Salman, who is very old and not very healthy, uh, was recently hospi- hospitalized, and. So wait that he goes, and then MBS, who is the first in line, he took over the knife, uh, the, being a crown prince, first crown prince, and he will inherit his father. Uh, so this is the. But if it doesn't happen, and some uh, some coup uh, or instability is happened during this transition period, nobody will be. I mean, it will not come as a surprise because it is, in a way, on the wall. Uh, it can happen. The transition can can go quietly and, uh, and in a structured way, and it can be uh, it can be it can become uh, different. Uh, and you add to that the challenges Saudi Arabia have. The, we talked about the economic right. challenge, and the, they are bogged down in Yemen and all those uh, all those countries around the around the region where they had some influence, like in Lebanon. They lost Lebanon and uh, in, right. in, to some extent to in the Palestinian arena. They lost their uh, they lost their influence. You remember uh, Hariri was kidnapped and it was another failed uh, right. adventure. Right. They keep trying to vie with Iran, and they, they at least on a regional level, they even though they have more money and, and on better terms with most of the countries, they can't seem to edge out Iran in their kind of regional cold war that they have. Exactly, and what what is what is interesting that it has become a. a Hot war, uh, because the attack in Abakik right. against the against the Saudi Arabia critical oil infrastructure uh, that in last September it was a direct attack from Iran hitting critical infrastructure. Uh, in right, right. It, was, it was cruise missiles and drones, cruise and missiles and, uh, and drones and ballistic missiles. It very was a combination, sophisticated attack. very sophisticated and very and very accurate. Very, very, very accurate. We have to learn some lesson learned from this attack and we had uh, uh, because it was very accurate very capable attack against uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, Saudi Arabia didn't even dare uh, to retaliate so Saudi Arabia has many problems Saudi, Saudi Arabia didn't dare to retaliate and also the United States which traditionally would have backed kind of its allies in the region against such a threat also at the time didn't uh didn't react didn't react so so that takes me to my next question is you we were talking about kind of the the and we were talking before before we uh, went on air about the major um three major trends that are influencing the region so we mentioned that the arab spring um the upheaval hasn't run its course and we're still in the midst of it and so you have a number of countries that are still in a civil war you have a number of countries that are very unstable politically um, and then one of the things that you mentioned was uh, kind of the role of the United States, the changing role of the United States and the superpowers in the region. So I'd like to, I'd like to get to that um, a, a, as part of your kind of big three things that are shaping this yes, region. Yes, you said the, the, the first is the upheaval right. and its implications and the developments. 
in surprises. The second one, the second one is, uh, is Iran and its quest for hegemony in the region uh, on the one hand and the forces that are pushing back uh, Iran. So Iran, uh, this is a big story we maybe we'll talk about later. Yes, and the definitely. third story, and the third story, I, I talk about three stories. The third one is the international or the external involvement in the region. And the big question mark about this involvement is uh, the role of the United States, the leadership of the United States in the region. Now, it's, not, it's an open secret that the United States is, uh, even during the Obama administration, you remember, we all remember the pivot to Asia. Right. I mean, and when you read the papers, the strategic uh, papers of the strategic thinking of the United States, uh, for example, the recent uh, the national defense strategy from 2018, it's very clear that the United States decided that terror that uh, shaped American policy in the Middle East, especially in the Middle East, uh, was the, the main driver of U.S. foreign policy after 9-11 and the global war on terror. And when you read in 2018 the national defense strategy, you discover, and it's written there, that we decided to... To, to put the global war on terror and to, real, to decrease its priority. And the main priority becomes, I mean, this huge uh, carrier is moving to the, to the main priority, which is it's great power competition. With and China. China. With China and Russia. And Russia. And this is, the, this is now the focus. So, and if you ask me, it's much more China than Russia. It's, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I speak to a lot of groups on this. <clears throat> and, and one of the things that I, I always love telling American groups especially is that the, um, the Obama administration started, but the Trump administration has continued this pivot away from the Middle East and towards great power competition. Yes, and now, now I think, uh, you know, American society, you know it better than me. We, we said maybe we'll talk a little bit about the elections in the United States and how it influences uh, this neighborhood. You know better than me that Trump says uh, he he want to end with those endless wars right. in the region and uh, i mean the united the, the american community or the american the american the american society is very divided on every subject but i think this is one of the rare subjects where very there is united. some very some, uh, some unity uh, some unity some uh, anonymity uh, yeah there's there's a big division about what should be America's role in the world um kind of between more of the traditionalists I mean correct me if I'm wrong cuz you're following this a lot more closely than I am these days but um um be, between those Americans who want, who who want America to go back to being the dominant leadership force in the world both from a values perspective and a military perspective uh and those who who think America should should take a step back which is kind of what Obama was trying to do. But I think there's, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There's agreement across the board that America needs to stop getting involved in Middle Eastern wars and in costly... Okay, so this is one consensus. This is yeah. one consensus. Second consensus, very rare one, in the, current, uh, <laughs> in the current situation in the United States. The second consensus is China. China is a consensus. China and Russia, great power is a consensus. That China is threatening... The, the American way of life, the American vision of order, the American supremacy on every aspect. The, world, the world order that America built, the right? World, yeah, the liberal order. <laughs> the, the, this is a threat to the liberal order. So, I mean, the, so everybody understand there is a focus 
which is not the Middle East, and they want to get away, and they had enough. They are, they are America, the UN, United States is fed up with those endless wars in the Middle East. This is a consensus. So it is also understood here, from here in the, in the region. Secondly, and Trump is talking about it, uh, like saying this uh, explicitly, uh, we are less dependent on oil. That's right. And uh, we had with, with this shale uh, revolution, uh, oil shale. Shale oil, yeah. Shale oil revolution uh, <coughs> in, the, in the United States, and uh, you ha- we have enough oil, even though the recent crisis uh, proved uh, differently a little bit. But, I mean, the basic assumption is that we are less dependent on, ho- on oil. The America is. The Amer- America yeah. is less dependent on oil, which, is, which was... Uh, a very strong uh, driver and interest of the United States uh, in the last uh, few decades. So we are uh, more or less uh, independent energetically, so energetic independence, energy independence, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a factor. And uh, you look uh, what the United States has been doing in the region, and you discover that in Syria they evacuated. I mean, those uh, pictures, those pictures on the highway in the northern part of Syria, in the Kurdish area in Syria, it's M5 or M4 highway. Uh, the Russians going in in the north in last October. The Russians are going in and, uh, and the Americans are fading or going out. American vehicles with the flags was very, very symbolic. Um, so you ask yourself, where is America is... Uh, uh, is investing its energy. Uh, so you discover that in Syria, we are, as an Israelis, we have to, we have to fight with Ameri- with the Iranian efforts to, with Iranian efforts to establish some military presence in Syria. And who is fighting? We are fighting there alone. The United States is not part of this fight. Maybe it supports us strategically and politically, but it's not part of the fight uh, in Syria. So they left Syria. You look at Libya. Uh, we talked about Libya, which is, uh, uh, where is um, where is the United States in Libya? It's nowhere to yeah. be found. It's nowhere to be found. And who is taking control? They're, they're Turkey. Not, they're not even there diplomatically. It's become a, a struggle between Turkey and Russia, and Russia, and the UAE, and, and Saudi Arabia, and, and Egypt. Egypt. Right. Okay, so the United States is not really there. Not at all. Uh, not at all. Uh, you look at Afghanistan. The United States is going to leave Afghanistan and leave a mess on the ground with the Taliban in very strong Taliban. Inside, uh, they, they recently came to some kind of agreement. I, I'll, I'll do that in air quotes for our listeners, right? I mean, With Turkey, the Erdogan, the new sultan, Erdogan is uh, getting crazy all over the area, especially in the eastern Mediterranean, whereas the United States is nowhere to be found. Right. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it's not a, it's not a very uh, influential factor or player in all those... Uh, no, no one believes here... Um, uh, I mean, both both the United States allies, traditional allies, um, and adversaries, I, I think, don't believe that the United States has the conviction to to oppose the order that that it used to to oppose until recently. Okay, so I, I think the United States is uh, on the western part, on the in the Levant, in the western part of the Middle East. They are not very present. They still have a very strong presence in the Gulf. In the Gulf, I mean, the United States is still the most strong force in the region. It has, even though uh, Russia has become very influential in Syria, and now it is gaining some military presence in Libya, taking right. taking advantage of the current situation in Libya to bring in some military forces, airplanes, we don't get into it. Um, but uh, when you look at the whole, 
the United States is still very strong. It has the strategic partners in the region that strong but strategic partners. Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and others. Right. It has huge military bases sure. in the Gulf. It has the carriers. Uh, so it is very strong. Right, and, the, and the, if fifth you, and the fifth and the sixth, right, in the Mediterranean and in the Gulf. Yes. Right? It still has two carrier formations. Yes. I mean, but, but uh, the, the fleet is, uh, I mean, the, the fleet. yeah. Yes, but the, the carri- they have carriers in the Gulf with many uh, airplanes on board. They have huge bases in Qatar, in Saudi Arabia, in right. everywhere. You have, uh, I mean, the number is not official, but around 70,000 70, uh, troops, 70,000 troops uh, mm-hmm. in the region, uh, including in Iraq and other places. So, I mean, the United States, and if you want to know if the United States is strong or not strong in the Middle East, you can, I mean, many people, many, all, um, we mentioned the three countries, Lebanon, Iraq, uh, Lebanon, Iran. Lebanon, Iran, and Iraq. Right. Yes, but no, I, I, everybody now is talking about, they have some hopes that China is coming to save them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nasrallah talked about it, the Iranians are talking about the 25 years uh, strategic uh, agreement with China. And when you check, China is not coming anytime soon, and, and the Syrian. The third country is Syria, Bashar Assad. They want China to rebuild the country. Uh, you know, to rehabilitate. China will be happy to rebuild, but they're not sending any troops. Right. They're not, no, and they are not happy to rebuild either because uh, it's not a safe... Uh, it's not a safe investment. It's not a safe investment. Yeah. They have it's other priorities, and they are not coming anytime soon. And the, one of the problems that they have is American sanctions. They, they don't want to expose themselves to American sanctions coming to the help of Iran, Syria. Right. They, they'd just as rather learn the lessons that uh, America uh, uh, learned the hard way from just watching what happened and, and not uh, and not taking those risks themselves. Exactly. So they, they're, they're not, not arrogant enough to believe that they could do it better. And they are afraid to be exposed to American sanctions. So in the end of the day, in the end of the day, the United States is still a very strong player, power broker in the region. But the question marks about their convictions and their determination of the, the American determination is widening. I mean, the, this is uh, this this, and and there were few events in the region that increased the 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 doubts about American conviction and American will uh, to stay the course in the Middle East and to shape events in the Middle East. And uh, what you mentioned the attacks against the Saudi infrastructure that was unmet, right? With, with unmet with with retaliation. Uh, no retaliation, and uh, the Iranian took uh, down the global hawk back in June. Right, they right, took right. a global hawk. The United States did not retaliate. Hundred million dollar UAV. Spy, a UAV spy plane that was flying over international air. Right, international the, air, and uh, of and, course and the Iranian said it penetrated their uh, airspace, but but it didn't, and they 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 shot it, they shot it down, and no response. And even after the attacks against Soleimani. And the, the killing of Soleimani in Iraq. You, I, I read an interview with the, the commander of CENTCOM, the central command of the United States, which is the, the, the military command of the uh, Middle East. In the Middle East, yeah. uh, the, it's General McKinsey. He said, uh, even after Soleimani, he said, our maximum pressure on Iran doesn't have a military component. Why? Because uh, it is understood that if there are no American casualties on the ground, then the United States is not willing to. And this is new. This is new in American in America's approach to the Middle East since 
Obama and continues right through Trump. Yes. Yes. So getting away, uh, uh, go back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember Obama was talking leading from behind and yeah, different. Yeah, yeah. In the Middle East, it's difficult to lead from behind. You have to lead from the f- from the front. And uh, so the, the doubts about American role in the region and also Israeli doubts, I think, about American role in the region and American determination to block Iran from expanding its nu- nuclear project. Yeah. Uh, so there are some doubts about American role, and and you see when the United States is not there, some uh, there is no power vacuum, no vacuums, no vacuums, and some other forces are uh, going inside. So in the Gulf, for the time being, because of American presence and influence, and in the end of the day, who 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 makes who makes sure that the United that Iran doesn't interrupt the. Uh, the, the, the navigation in the Strait of Hormuz. Oh, that's the United States. It's right. the United yeah. States. So still in the Gulf, the United States is very strong. In other places, you discover that if the United States is not there, some other forces like, like Russia in, in Syria. Now you see Russia and Turkey, also Turks in Syria, and also you see Russia and Turkey in, the in, in, the, in Libya. And the, Africom, the African command of the United States is afraid that Russia is going to project power to the southern part of Europe from Libya and the Mediterranean. Which is what they're trying to do, right? I mean, part yes. of part of Russia's game in Libya uh, and Turkey's, but, but especially Russia's game in Libya, is to gain a strategic foothold on the southern reaches of Europe, right? Yes, and, and to Africa. be able to pressure NATO. And Africa. And to get and a to foothold into some, Africa. to have right. some geostrategic uh, use of, to, of, of uh, some ports, control over ports in uh, in Libya and in Syria and create the eastern and 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 project power to the eastern part of the Mediterranean which there also they are uh, they are in some kind of uh, um, competition with Turkey which is also trying to expand its influence in the eastern Mediterranean but again other other forces are going inside. From an Israeli point of view, it's a very neg- is a, this is a very negative. Right. I was going to ask you, what does that do? So so let's let's take you back to your hat as a former senior Israeli strategic planner. Okay, um, what does that do now um, from a strategic planning perspective when the dominant force in the region was the United States, our ally? And now the United States has pulled back, certainly out of the western part of the Middle East, like you said. And and now you have uh, outside great power competition between Russia and Turkey vying for power in this part of the world. How, what, how does that change the way that, that we now as Israel and that the IDF has to now approach the region? And how does that change our planning? To To give you a general answer, we are afraid that we are going to be left some kind of, somehow alone vis-a-vis strategic challenges. And uh, take Syria, for example. We have to deal uh, with Russia. Uh, all our operations, alleged operations that, uh, according to foreign media, etc., we are operating inside Syria. And we have to deal with the Russians. And uh, after uh, Israel, uh, after, after uh, in September 2018, uh, there was some um, after the event that Syrian uh, Syrian um, uh, Syrian uh, air defense uh, shot down a Russian plane uh, in, over Syria, and there was some very strong Russian pressure on Israel not to operate. And right, there was there that. was a hiatus of some month that, according to the press, we didn't operate there because of Russian pressure. So we have to deal with Russian pressure, uh, and Russia. 
is a problematic uh, force on our doorstep uh, right. that we have to to deal with Russia's uh, friends with everybody in this region. Uh, friends, friends and foes. Uh, friends, yes. yes but right. it works with all, pa- with all it sides. Works with I'll, I'll give you an example in Russia. What's yeah. the problem? I mean, some people say, look, the Russians, they give you, uh, they give us, and this was, uh, this was one of Israel's. In, in September 2015, when, when Russian airplanes landed, Russian airplane and air defense, uh, very advanced air defense capability landed in Syria, the same month, Our Prime Minister went very, I mean, uh, promptly yeah. uh, to meet Putin in Moscow. The objective of the meeting was to safeguard and guarantee our room, our freedom of operation in Syria. Yeah. And this freedom of operation in Syria was guaranteed. Part of our uh, diplomacy, let's call it, and, and uh, deconfliction uh, on the military channels with Russia. Of course, uh, some strategic uh, support from the United States uh, helped us, but in the end of the day, it, we had to uh, get to go and get in terms with the Russians. What is the problem? Okay, they give us... Uh, by the way, R- Russian policy is very clever policy. Very clever. Uh, for example, let's take... Now they are in some kind of a competition uh, between... Uh, Uh, bet- with Iran in Syria. So what is best, uh, what the best way to uh, degrade, uh, to degrade uh, Iranian influence in Syria is to use American F-15 operated by Israeli pilots <laughs> uh, that, uh, that degrade uh, the presence, the military presence of Iran, of Iran in Syria. But on the other hand... The Russians are the masters of achieving the most with the least. Exactly. And, at least in foreign policy. And what, what, what is the other side of the equation? On the other side of the equation, they don't, they let the Iranians push uh, military capabilities into Syria and from Syria into Lebanon. They don't do, they don't do anything. Right. Uh, they let them some, they, le- they give us some uh, room, room of maneuver. They give them they give some freedom of operation maneuver, right. to, 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 the, to the Iranians. And they need the Iranians because In the end of the day, this is an eternal question. Uh, everybody asks if a black hat can walk between, uh, can pass between the United States, uh, between Russia and Iran in Syria. Uh, this is, 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 are these strategic relationship in Syria or just marriage of convenience? This is an internal question. And I think the question is wider. I mean, the Russians, they don't need the Iranian only in Syria, and they need them in Syria as a boots on the ground, right. etc. But of, of course, there are some signs that there is some, some kind of competition over resources, future resources sure. and concessions, and uh, to exploit uh, the investment in Syria, between Iran and, and Syria. But the relationship between Russia and Iran are wider than Syria. It doesn't end in Syria. It doesn't begin in Syria. It begins probably more in the Gulf. Because, like I said, Americans are very strong in the Gulf. The Russians would have liked... To increase their influence, because, I mean, they were uh, until the, in the middle uh, in the middle of the 70s, they were a very influential uh, player uh, in the Middle East in general, and they want to renew this influence that was uh, that they were kicked out in a way. They were kicked out from the region in the midst in the middle of the 70s. They want to renew their influence. One of the places, of course, the most important places in the region is the Gulf, and they want to go and in- increase their influence. But Americans are very strong in the Gulf. Right. What do they have in the Gulf? They have the Iranians. 
They have the Iranians, a very superpower, regional superpower, very hostile to the United States, and they want to increase the relationship with Russia as a, as a bargain chip, as a leverage mm. vis-a-vis the United States. Also in other, in other arenas, like in arms control and global issues. So Iran can be an asset for the Russians in the Gulf and in the, in the, in the bigger picture, in the bigger play. Uh, but they so don't, see, they don't see them as an equal in any way. I mean, they're trying to use them as a leverage point, as a yes, bargaining chip. As a leverage, but yeah, in the, so you could say like a bulldog. But, but in a way, where does it leave us? Mm-hmm. The United, the Russia is supporting the right of the Iranian to expand uh, their uh, nuclear program, uh, nuclear uh, project. They say this is the, this, uh, the United States is to, is, is, is to carry the blame because the United States withdrew, withdrew from the agreement. Withdrew from the agreement. Uh, so they support the right to expand the nuclear, uh, the nuclear uh, project. Secondly, uh, recently, I don't know if you followed, uh, the, the, in the, U, in the IAEA, uh, uh, the IAEA board, the International Agency, Atomic Energy Agency, uh, took a decision in, in Vienna, uh, that called the Iran to cooperate fully and give full access to some um, suspected nuclear sites. Uh, I think their 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 chief inspector or the is chief now is in he's, Iran. He's there now. Is now is is coming to talk about the the access to those uh, to those uh, suspected sites. Uh, by the way, the activity in the sites, the suspicions about the in nuclear activity is related to a nuclear weapon, but it's an old it's an old activity from the beginning of the 2000, uh, from the from 20 years ago. Uh, but anyway, there was a there was a vote in the in the IAEA in Vienna, and uh, China and Russia, uh, you have to say Russia and China, following it. Uh, objected this decision. So in a way, Russia gives legitimacy to Iran not to cooperate fully with the international yeah. uh, inspectors. And the Russians and the Chinese have been kind of uh, dragging their feet on, on putting any kind of pressure on Iran's nuclear program from the beginning. I mean, they and, were, and the sanctions, especially right, China, right. that is giving some uh, leeway to the Iranian when it comes to American China and American pressure. So in the end of the day, uh, Russia, when the United States is not uh, leading uh, the processes here, this could be a very problematic issue for Israel. By the way, in the next, uh, we have a conference here on the 10th. It will be uh, live. This is the, the famous Herzliya conference, right? Yeah, this year we are not we are not calling it the Herzliya conference, okay. but the Herzliya conference because of the coronavirus. The virtual Herzliya conference. Exactly. The, it, 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 conference. Will be a conference or, it will be a conference organized by the Institute for Policy and Strategy, and uh, it will be called a political military conference, uh, international regional conference. And when is this taking place? On the 10th, it will be streamlined online. Uh, anybody can anybody can view. Anybody can view. No charge. And uh, I think it will be a very interesting conference, very interesting. So this will be on the, so, on the website so, uh, for the Institute for Policy and Strategy at the IDC. IDC, yes. Okay. And you have a lot of publicity now, and uh, yeah. it will be very easy to access that. And the, the, the panel that we have with uh, also uh, some American colleagues uh, uh, from the United States, very senior colleagues, and uh, there will be very senior uh, ex-officials that will be interviewed during the conference. But our panel on Iran... Is, uh, I think is called the, the conflict, uh, the, the Iranian conflict or the, the conflict with Iran, 
will Israel be left alone? This is the, uh, and we need American support. Uh, for example, how can you, inv- uh, for example, you wanted to, to talk a little bit about American, uh, American elections. I think American election is a game changer. No, it, it doesn't matter who wins. If Trump is elected for a second term, it's a game changer. Why? If, Why? Because his policies, uh, he will take uh, further uh, his policies in a very strong way. The, the, iso- the isolationist be, policies? It's is, is different policies uh, vis-a-vis China, vis-a-vis Iran. They, I think he, he, will be, he will be working very hard for his legacy, and we are expecting some surprises. And when I talk about, uh, about Iran, so this is a game changer. Of course, if Biden comes, it will be a game changer. Let, let's take Iran, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid of a scenario. If, if Trump is elected, he said, look, if I'm re-elected, if I'm re-elected, it will take me 30 days or 20 days, few weeks, and I will have an but agreement. agreement with Iran within 30 an days. An agreement with Iran. What, uh, my nightmare scenario is that it will take the same agreement, put it wrap it up in a different package that will look, it will look nicer uh, than Obama agreement, but in the substance will be the same. Uh, I'll and take, I'll take it even one step further. Um, um, you know, I, I, and I have a lot of people who are always asking me about, uh, you know, the Iran agreement was so bad for Israel, et cetera. And, and Trump has been so tough on Iran. I, I, first of all, I don't think he has. Um, and, and Trump, because he doesn't really have any hardcore ideology and because he's gone through so many um, foreign policy and national security advisors who, who he's had many capable advisors, but he's all he's fired them or they've resigned. Um, I can very easily see a scenario where he can accept a deal that would actually maybe even be worse than the Iran deal was just so that I he can s- and it will sell. We have it. to make sure Is we it? have to make sure that the flaws and the deficiencies of the original right. nuclear deal are fixed and they are, they, this deal has some very bad deficiencies but uh, but uh, the the reason I doubt because Trump he looks very tough on Iran and one ha- it has to be said that uh, that the uh, Maximum pressure strategy created a lot of pressure on Iran. It doesn't mean that this strategy is successful, but everybody in the beginning, everybody doubted that the United States can go it alone with sanctions and create a very tough leverage, tougher and stronger and more painful than what has created uh, by Obama with the cooperation of the international community, Mm -hmm. the Europeans and even the Russians, okay? So many people doubted that he can do it without international cooperation. But the United States has proven with maximum pressure that it can create a leverage much stronger than ever. Well, it's, its role it, in the global economy is still so strong that it's, a, it's able to bully other countries to, to exactly. cooperate. So, so the leverage is there. The failure is what did they do with the leverage? Right. They there, didn't there doesn't do seem to be a plan. Right? So I, have, I, can, I can give you, an, uh, and I wrote recently a paper for the, for the Atlantic Council in Washington about how, I mean, the title was what, what should be done in order to make maximum pressure more effective. Okay, something like that. And I, I can give you uh, two-hour lectures about it, what are the inconsistencies uh, of the maximum pressure strategy. But say, say that three times fast. Inconsistencies. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I mean, the, the, the pressure is there. The leverage is there. The, the question is, what do you right. do without well, it? What's now, I, I have a doubts. I have, I have my doubts about, uh, the, uh, about what Trump is going to do and how is, how is he going in a second term. This is why I, I say it's a game changer because we need to expect 
surprises. Yeah, I he, was and very he's not, surprised. And he's not running for re-election if he gets elected exactly. again, right? So. I was very surprised. Trump unhinged. <laughs> <laughs> I was very surprised, for example, what Trump has done with uh, North Korea. Because when you take North Korea, I, th- I thought, look, in North Korea you cannot bluff. Why can, why, if you are an American, you cannot bluff with North Korea. What, what is the problem with North Korea? The problem is that the U.S. Intel community got it. I mean, it was an Intel failure where to, to try and predict the timetable time of, the, of, the, of the North Korean uh, nuclear uh, prod program. And uh, the international, like three years ago, the, the, the in Intel community in the United States assess that it will take a decade or so uh, for the Iranian for the North Koreans uh, to have the capability to hit with nuclear missile to hit the United States with a nuclear warhead uh, put on a missile and 3 years ago North Korea made a test a nuclear t- a missile test and then uh, the international i mean the intel community in the United States said look uh, it's much. It's like five or six years uh, earlier that they ha- have this capability, and they have this capability right now to to um, to assemble the package and to deliver assemble it. the package. I mean, to miniature to miniaturize uh, the the nuclear device and put it on a warhead. Uh, they were much more. Uh, They're much more advanced than the much American more advanced that, that that we thought that everybody thought, and now they have this capability and said, okay. If they have this capability, the, the United States cannot bullshit anymore. I mean, uh, you have uh, a direct nuclear threat on the United States. Of course, you have nuclear, uh, you have uh, air defense, uh, you have other means. But in the end of the day, this is a very concrete right. threat. You cannot bullshit. And what did I see Trump doing? He, is, he went, he met three times, he met Kim, and he said, look, we are buddies, we don't have a, a, a threat anymore. I mean, yeah, I solved okay. the problem. I solved the problem. I went to Singapore and I solved the problem. Yeah. I solved the problem. The problem is not solved. Uh, and I'm afraid the, a replica of this scenario in the negotiation with Iran it will go. Right. That, that's, that's exactly what I was. Uh, so this is my nightmare to. scenario. And uh, he, he's, he's, again, he gets along with autocrats. Yeah. Or he seems to. He seems to. And so, you know, it's very easy to cut a deal that looks good. And he can sell it, and he's, he's obviously is, been capable of trying to sell things to the public. And we have the same problem here. We are in the post-truth era. Right, right, right. And you can say whatever you want. People are, some people will buy your lies. And uh, we, see it, uh, we see it now in, in, in Israeli politics. Everybody says anything related to reality, doesn't relate to reality, truth or not truth, it doesn't matter. Everybody talks yeah. and say whatever. And, and I'm amazed that people don't see the lie. But people keep voting for it. It is amazing. It, 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 it is it's it's shocking. It it's is shocking. Sh- it and, is astounding. And, and, I mean, disturbing. Trump is the master of post-truth. Uh, yeah. uh, alternative facts. Alternative facts. And I'm, I'm worried. So if you She's resigning, by the way, Mrs. Alternative Facts. Yes. Kellyanne Conway. Conway. I always she found, resigned. I always yeah. found it fascinating that her husband is, you know... Uh, George Conway. George Conway is one of the yes, biggest... Yes, it's the Lincoln uh, uh, Project. One of the opponents of Trump, you know, and how they managed to keep that... But he, well, also, they, he also left... Uh, maybe they have uh, joint plans because he also <laughs> left the Lincoln uh, Foundation. Yeah, he left. They both. They announced at the same time that they're both going to resign from... She's resigning from the administration. He's resigning and taking a break, I think he said, from the Lincoln administration. And his da- their daughter, their 15-year-old daughter, put up tweets last week that she was going to... Basically, that her house was a shit show and that she was trying to... Uh, 
request an emancipation process, which it kind of led to their okay. whatever it is. It, the point is, uh, it seems to be that um, there's a lot of instability. There's a lot of dishonesty that nobody seems to hold the leaders to account for whatever they say because we're in such a polarized world now where if you're not living in an autocratic state where in general you're not going to be voicing your opposition to the government um you know you're a part of your tribal camp or whatever that may be so if you are a uh, i'll just use israel for the example if you're a beast if you're a bb voter he could basically lie to your face and you would still support him and if you're on the other camp you could probably get away with the same um, and what is the influence if you add this 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 current reality to the doubts about American uh, determination to influence and shape what's going on in the Middle East, which, which is crucial because this is a region who is being, uh, in tra- this is a region in transition. Uh, you have to influence uh, in order to get good results. And if the United States is not there and uh, everything is like the image and appearance, uh, I think it, sh- it, it leaves Israel in a very... Uh, in a position of uh, of big concern, okay, for is, the future. Is it uh, possible that the UAE deal, which we haven't talked about, which I, we'll I want to get to, which that. we'll get to, but is is it possible that Israel will see this sort of a, 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 a reality where the U.S. doesn't have influence and where there's some sort of a vacuum and say maybe we're at the place as a state where now we have more open re- relationships with with the countries around us where we will start to have a more outward looking uh, uh uh foreign policy that serves to influence activities or or uh, you know i i look i i think uh, up until now maybe, we've been maybe, very maybe. focused on ourselves and our and our our but basically you're asking and, is israel going to take a step up and become a, a regional more power. than a military regional power will it become a a diplomatic regional power Look, that can influence I, I saw maybe far away. maybe we'll uh, fin- we'll wrap it up with, the, the, with with this agreement and the Palestinian issue we haven't talked about the Palestinian issue a little bit with jokes sure. etc but we didn't uh, mm-hmm. I saw a webinar a few weeks ago I don't remember who said that in this webinar one expert said they are coming to Israel right now to to have some peace because they are not sure about the American backing and they are right. looking for other players. Someone said that. I'm not sure. I think they come. Like I said, the United States is still a very strong power broker in the in the Gulf and I think uh, American uh, intervention and American uh, go-between uh, pres- uh, made this breakthrough. Uh, so, yeah, um, facilitated it for sure. Facilitated for sure. Uh, there were some uh, incentives, American incentives, as we learned after the deal, uh, like example, the F-35 incentive. Uh, the QME. The QME and F-35 incentive. Uh, and the QME so, is something so that, that you and I know very well. <laughs> and and we can talk. I, I wrote about it uh, the other day. Yeah, on Sunday, there was... Um, the what? Was the, the, the QME. The I'll, qualitative, I'll military, qualitative military okay. of Israel that uh, is part of American law. Um, this is one of the key foundational aspects of the of the strategic cooperation between Israel and the United States is this America's commitment to ensuring Israel's qualitative military edge. Anyway, on Sunday I wrote a piece uh, in Ynet uh, saying that uh, we should not agree to sell the F-35 to... You, you don't think so? So I don't think so. But, but Why don't you t- take a step back, explain yeah, to yeah, I, people... I, I want to... You asked the question about about our relationship. So I think still the United States is still a, a very strong player uh, facilitating our relationship. But I mean the the move 
from UAE is a very bold move. It's a bold one. And uh, why is it bold? Because the, the environment that we discussed uh, just recently is a very unstable uh, environment. And in an unstable environment, both regionally and domestically, you are hesitant to take risks. Uh, normalization with Israel is a risk. Why is it a risk? Because they are not sure how the Arab street will react. Will react. And uh, how, do, how do I know it's, it's, it's sensitive? Uh, because... I saw the reaction of the Saudi Arabia. They still don't want to take the chance. They s- but, they did, but they didn't criticize it. No, they didn't. But they say we are, we are sticking. What is the revolution here? What is the revolution? The revolution here, we are willing. I mean, the UAE, uh, what did they change? They changed the, the order. They said, okay, we are willing to normalize relationship with Israel before a solution is found to the Palestinian uh, problem. This is the And so that Israel doesn't annex unilaterally parts of the West Okay, Bank, let's right? talk, in a second we'll talk about the annexation, but I mean uh, the idea, the Arab initiative is saying we are ready to normalize the relationship once right. you have some breakthrough with the Palestinians. And now flipped they it change, on its head. They flipped it on, on its head. This is also this is what, and, and to tell you the truth, I, I was mistaken. I didn't think they will have the, 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 the courage to go forward, the Arab states. Even though everybody understands that they they have they they are fed up with the Palestinian conflict, which is uh, which is not uh, no 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 solution looms in the horizon. Well, it's, it's, been, the, it's been a thorn in. I mean, we always talk about it as a thorn okay, in. Okay, and they right? have other, and so it's very obvious that they had enough with the Palestinian problem. It's very obvious that they want to promote other very vital interests that they have, the Arabs. They have uh, the, the the Iranian threat is a, is an overlapping uh, interest with Israel. The anti-terror uh, capabilities and the anti-terror the war on terror and the war on extremism, especially Muslim uh, Muslim extremism like the Muslim Brotherhood, etc. Uh, so they want they want very badly to promote those uh, interests and they don't want to wait for the Palestinians and they want to use them, but. And I think the annexation in this regard, the annexation helped them in a way uh, to to cover their flank vis-à-vis the Arab street. They said, okay... It was a fig leaf, right? It was a, like a fig leaf. Like they were able to say, no, no, I don't no think we're not the bad guys here. We're actually stopping annexation. Okay, right? you can call it a fig leaf, a fig leaf or a lip service. I think it's more, uh, it's deeper than that. Mm. It's, it's their cover. Without that, they could have not done that. Without... Right. Without taking it off the table, they could have not moved forward. Right. So they, they they could have not taken the risk, and the risk is is big. It's big because uh, because of the crisis, uh, the, the 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 oil crisis, and their dependency that they want to reduce on oil, and the the the, the people. We discussed all that. So it's it's a, it's a, it's a it's a sensitive times to take this bold move, and they took it. Well, so so the annexation is more substantial in this regard to cover to to be able to take the risk. And this is one. And second, they want uh, they want the American. They uh, want the American arms, right? They yeah, want to get they access want the American to the, goods to the F thirty five. F thirty five and and, attack. and America won't sell that because of Israeli objections. Okay, now let's talk about this. Yeah, you asked me uh, earlier with this uh, Arab Spring, what what it can what can be the results? Arab, Arab the disappeal. What can it do? Uh, how can it surprise Israel? So I, rem- I remind you in 2013 or t- 2012, Muslim Brotherhoods, with, <laughs> I mentioned them, so uh, 
reminded me, Muslim Brothers took over Egypt. They won election in Egypt. The Obama administration supported the Muslim Brotherhood. Mohammed I Morsi. Mean, Mohammed Morsi. And they made, Mohammed Morsi made, made the mistake. It's like a miracle. It's made, he made a mistake. He chose to, as his, uh, as his uh, defense secretary, he chose Sisi. And right. Sisi is a very religious guy, but he is not willing to have a political Islam in control of the country. And he didn't, he didn't like the Muslim Brotherhood monster, and he... He, he also didn't know how to govern. I mean, that was part of the... Right, they failed. No. Yeah, they failed, but he, he made the coup. Right. I mean, uh, it's not very sexy to say that the, the Egyptians, but I'm not official anymore. I know. <laughs> you can say what you Egyptians, want Egyptians, <laughs> I can say what I want. Egyptians, it's, it was a coup. It was a coup. It was a coup, and he was sent to prison and died. Okay, and uh, Morsi. And, uh, and they are not in control. But imagine a situation. They didn't start, I mean, I mean our all national security is based on the pillar of this, secu- of this peace, peace agreement, agreement with, Egypt. with Egypt. I mean, yeah. it could have changed the whole... Equation. And they, they have a very advanced American weapons. Right. Now, it happened to us before. It happened to us before, uh, with, with Iran, with Iran. It was a strategic partner. It became uh, the most, uh, aggressive enemy that we have. Yeah, Iran, Iran had until 79 entirely advanced American arms. Uh, By the way, they, they, right. they still have some of them. They're just of old course, now. They of do. course, they have them and they operate them. The only airplane that can reach Israel from Iran is an American airplane. It's the F-14. The Tomcat. The, yeah, yeah. The Tomcat. The F-14, uh, which is still operated. Uh, they have Hawk. Uh, Hawk, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they have Hawk. Uh, they still anti- have F-4s. They're still flying like Nobody's Vietnam flying era. F-4s. Nobody's flying F-4s. So, so, so you see, and you take Turkey. Turkey, we had strategic sure. yeah, yeah. relationship with Turkey. Now Turkey is a rival. I, I remember uh, the meeting... Uh, the, Back when uh, we were serving together uh, in 2006-7, I raised it because man, nobody imagined it. And uh, I don't know if anyone listened to me because I was a young officer. But no, no one listens to you, Dan. Nobody listens to me. But I remember saying very clearly in a meeting with uh, our general. What year? This would have been, this, w- this was before anyone saw Turkey. This was before the Marmara. So, okay, before. And, and I remember saying in a very, we had a whole big meeting about Turkey. And I said, Turkey, mark my words, is going to be what Iran was in, in 78. That's where we are now. And, and it happened. Years, I'm not sure. Uh, yes, yes. But they, they became a very threatening and hostile yeah. uh, entity here in the Middle East. And uh, now, I remember, by the way, we, when I was in service, we went to, it was 2000 and something, we went to talks uh, in Ankara. It was uh, military to military talks in Ankara. We went to the headquarters of the joint, the joint the joint staff, the Turkish joint staff in Ankara. We had a very large uh, evening reception there. And in the end, it was with the military. Our host was uh, the deputy chief of staff. He was General Sejin. And uh, he hosted us. And in the end of the meal, you are served with cognac or alcohol, any kind of alcohol, just to make a statement that we are not religious. It's all gone. All gone. Yeah. This Sejin is many, for many years in prison. Uh, oh, he, Erdogan <laughs> purged the entire leadership of the military, right? Yes, purged the, purged the, mili- the leadership. He was sent just a few, a few years after we met him. He was sent to jail. Nobody serves alcohol uh, in the joint staff anymore. And I mean, the, the reality has changed completely. Now, what I say is, uh, our, first of all, 
and this is what I, I wrote about the F-35. First of all, our, our military supremacy in the region is, very, is crucial. First of all, to our deterrent image vis-a-vis right. -vis the neighborhood. Secondly, only after the Arabs understood that we are superior militarily and we are, not, we are here to stay and we cannot be defeated, they started to, to think about contacts and, and later peace processes and, and peace treaties with Israel. After we, we have proved that we, are, we cannot be defeated. So our deterrent is, 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 a, is an important issue on its own. This is one. Second, like I said, this is a very unstable region, and I, 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 don't, I wouldn't be surprised if we had other, pro, other surprises here in the region and some, some countries that could, that could flip in the Gulf or in other places and change orientation. The only problem is the orientation is changed, but military equipment, advanced military equipment, once it's introduced into the region, it becomes part, part of the, the geography, yeah. the topography. It doesn't go anyway, like the F-14. This F-14, right, it's there. It's there. The, the question is, who is using them? And, uh, and, and we have to hedge, especially with this, uh, with this kind of technology, the F-35, which is the most advanced technology. So we have to hedge uh, some potential changes. And I can imagine a very unpleasant future. Uh, I mean, just, we, we tend to forget, but just until recently, ISIS was in control over a third of the, of the, of the, of right. the Middle East. Hey, uh, stuff can change and you have to edge. And this is something I remember yep. we, we used to meet with our American counterparts and, and talk to them about this. And I said, guys, <laughs> things can change very quickly in this region, you know, uh, and, and it's, it, people seem to be very short-sighted, especially when they live half a world away, when an ocean apart, they, they you know, you know, exactly. they, they, they don't think about the consequences. The consequences don't affect them as directly. They exactly. don't and, and, have an interest uh, uh, to, to Just to, to make a point here, what are the risks? Uh, what can be the risks? I mean, we have now uh, one of our main objectives, this Iran, we have to remind ourselves that this Iran that we had a strategic relationship with and changed has built the most effective and uh, frightening conventional threat against Israel from Lebanon. They have built Hezbollah in Lebanon. This is our biggest conventional threat these days. What is the, and now we are very worried of, about the accuracy, the, the, the precision Capability or the uh, the accuracy, right. what we call in Hebrew. Right. For, for those who aren't aware, Hezbollah, backed by Iran, has about one hundred and thirty thousand. Yes, but now they they they're try making to them precise. Exactly. Now they they want to make them more accurate and precise. And precise weapon is a different ball game. Right. And what what is this uh, F thirty five? It has F thirty five, F fifteens, all those capabilities. This is a pinpoint attack, strike capabilities from long distances. This is, this is, what are these uh, autonomic uh, munitions that can go all the way and hit very precise? And this is the biggest threat that we have. Do you uh, think, do you think the Americans are going to listen or is this the kind of administration that, uh, I think, I think the United States has a commitment and it's a real commitment, even though it is in tension with other interests uh, to sell uh, to jobs and uh, billions of dollars of income. From American weapons, right. I mean, there's a lot of interest at play so here for America. Tension. There's the the money issue. There's a relationship with the Gulf, sure. influence okay, so in what's, the Gulf. So, so I can easily see a transactional guy right now, like Trump. Let's mm -hmm. say he wins exactly. re-election. Even if he doesn't, you know, you you have people that are involved that that might be that would say, okay, 
Um, the cat's out of the bag on uh, normalization between you and the UAE. That's happening. We can't we can't put that away now. They're committed. You're committed. You know, uh, too much is is riding on it. Um, we're committed by law to uh, maintaining your qualitative military edge. What are you, Israel, going to do for us so that uh, we don't we don't go right. through can, with can this? Can you see a scenario where the what Trump, are they gonna, where Trump comes to Israel and says, "Guys, I gave you Jerusalem. I gave you the Golan." I got right. a, it's happening, right? Yeah, and he this says, is, this, this listen, seems to be that that's I like need, the game here. You to back game. off on the F thirty five. This is the game, and if if you want normalization, uh, give them the, this is the price. plane. This is the price, and it's a, right. It's but, a big but, price. but could he say? It's could he price. say? Okay, that's the price. And Israel says no, but we can't go back on normalization now because that's already out. I so hope, I hope we can find a solution. What's the solution? I, I hope we can find a solution that uh, first that this peace agreement and normalization will be tested for uh, many for many years, and then we will we will be able to talk about, uh, about dip the toes thing. into the water before jumping in. Yeah, I think. What could you the, see? The, 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 what, what could you? I have to. I have to just ask the question. Like, what could you see the American administration, whether it's Trump, especially if it's Trump, or even if it's Biden, saying to Israel, "Okay, you want us not to give this this advanced weaponry to the to the Emiratis? What are you prepared to do? Would it be something on the Palestinian issue? Would it be something on, uh, I don't know, cyber capabilities? Would it be something about we have to let Iran have this or that? Uh, I you think, have to live I think with they it. want the F thirty fives. I mean, what? I think they want the F thirty fives. The Emiratis. The Emiratis. Right. Sure, they want the F thirty five. They want the F. But but again, my question is: what the, the Americans, Americans have them. The Americans could say to Israel, "Okay, you have this I, agreement I think, with the Emiratis. I think you're getting what are you going to give us so that we don't give this to them?" It's an interesting question. It's an interesting question. I don't know exactly. I don't know if there there can be quid pro quo right. on a very right. different levels, but 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 it can happen. So that it 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 is still going on. It is still open. And uh, but but this is a big question, and uh, this could be uh, a big issue. I think the F thirty five because the F, it's not only the F thirty five because every this is the most advanced airplane. Okay, except maybe from the F F twenty two, but for me of its kind, it's it's um, and it has many capabilities. Uh, it's not only the airplane; it's all the systems that are right. on the airplane, the, the munitions and, and the intelligence and the and the uh, command and control capabilities. It's it's a all it's a all war machine. Vertical this, takeoff. Uh, and so all those systems, One once you sell yeah. them, once you sell the Emirates, you will not be able to tell. To, to, to Israel will not be able to tell. Look, look we want to don't sell them uh, armed UAVs, okay? Because they will tell you. I mean, this is most, such advanced airplanes. You agreed to sell this advanced capabilities, so everything that comes below those capabilities yeah. is already green light to to sell. Interesting. So, and then and then you have. I'm afraid that we will find ourselves. And then and then of course, what the Emirates will get, everybody else. Will will want will demand here in the region, sure, and and then you can find yourself with an, an, an arms race in the region, which is with this kind of un- instability in the region. Yeah, it's not a good the deal. trends that we discussed, the unstable trends that we saw that we see in the region, combined with a military and military arms race. Uh, or an arms race, this is a very negative, could be a very negative uh, development here in the region. Uh, so so I, I must tell you, I read, I read uh, a Wall Street Journal uh, piece a few months ago. Interesting, I don't remember what was the subject, but inside the story, there was another story that I didn't know. 
about a meeting between Sisi and Trump. And in the meeting, uh, Sisi asked Trump, I want the F-35. <laughs> and Trump said, okay, we'll give it to you in the meeting. And, uh, and then... <laughs> this is a country with rampant poverty. Yeah. People are like waiting in line for bread okay. in the streets and they want to buy an F-35. Yeah. The plane? <laughs> and... I'll give it. And, <laughs> and he told him he give it. He, he will give it to to him. And then the administration came and and said, "Look, it was a mistake. We are not going to yeah, give you can't say that." And they said, "Now in every meeting between the this is the story in the Wall Street Journal, they said in every meeting between uh, Egyptian officials and American officials, the Egyptian the first line." The first talking point is what about the F-35 that the guy? The, so everybody wants this uh, this this capability here in the region, and uh, and again uh, Egypt. We didn't discuss Egypt. Egypt. Okay. I don't know if we have time to get we into don't Egypt have time. today. But you I want I want to I wanna take a step back here and ask you. You ju- you know like a, the good military man you are. You jumped into the the threats and the dangers. But but let's talk about the the possibilities. You know um, Pompeo is here. Um, he's supposedly going to Sudan after this. There's talks of Bahrain being the next uh, country. Do, mm-hmm. you, do you realistically see now a wave of countries, Bahrain, Oman, uh, maybe I, I'm surprised by Sudan because of where they were just a few years ago, um, kind of being used by Iran to funnel arms into the region, Morocco. Do you see kind of a wave of countries now, one after one, coming to normalize relations with Israel? Is that I think just it's hyperbole? a possibility. I want, yeah, I think it's. A, I want to talk about the Palestinian problem. So, but this is a good lead to the what yeah. I want to say because um, I think it's a it's a possibility. I think the I think it's an historical. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think our relationship with UAE and their willingness to start normalization and and uh, uh, without uh, solving first the Palestinian issue is an historical breakthrough. It's very important for Israel, its acceptance in the region, etc. Um, the problem is, and I think, and I, think I, I see uh, the possibility of other, uh, this is a real possibility, uh, of others following the steps of uh, UAE and normalized relationship. Would it be Sudan and Bahrain in the first place? And maybe other uh, will come later. Even though it's more complicated than that, we saw in Sudan that right. uh, some some heads were old because of some declarations, and it's not very, it's not going to be easy. But I think it's a very plausible scenario for the foreseeable future, other other countries, and this is very important for Israel. But the problem is the problem is that the Palestinian what is the Palestinian reaction? The Palestinian the, the Palestinians' reaction is they call it a betrayal, they call it a, a, a stab, stabbing, in stab in the back. Uh, why? Because they lost the leverage. Yeah, they lost their yeah. main. Their they lost main the chip. Arab card. Right. One of the main chip. They had the key for the relationship between. They had right. the key of normalization between Israel and the Arabs, and they lost it. And it's a huge blow for yeah. the Palestinians. This is what, what I wrote. Do they my, do? I wrote this in an article last week uh, that, that this is the main revolution in the region, right? That yes. So what do they? What is the Palestinian reaction? They they are. Uh, they said we are not going to let go. We are not going to compromise. And we we stay the course with the Arabs or without the Arabs, and they get, and who who is supporting them? I mean, I'm talking about the Palestinian Authority. Who is supporting the Palestinian Authority now in this uh, struggle against? Uh, is it going to be Iran or Turkey or one of kind of the I more mean, radical elements? I look, elements? I look, I look, I look, I I follow the declaration on this issue. Mm-hmm. They only they, they got the support from Iran. They were very blunt against the UAE and even threatful. 
I mean, their, their uh, declaration were very, were, were, they, 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 sh- they sound threats against the UAE. So this is Iran, and then you have Syria, and then you have Hezbollah, and then you have uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, the uh, world Muslim Brotherhood who supported Abu Mazen against. Uh, against. And uh, so all the radical, all the radical, and of course Hamas and of Islamic course. Jihad, etc. All the radicals, uh, and Abu Mazen is pushed to the to the into the arms of the radical into the camp. arms of the radical camp here. Yeah. And where does it leave Israel? It leaves us with normalization on the one hand, but a worsening Palestinian problem on the other. Because what do I see on the ground? On the ground, uh, and and we are not willing to say uh, annexation is over. And uh, it's off the table. And maybe then the Palestinian Authority could have renewed the coordination, the civilian and military coordination, but they are stopped. What do I see? I see a weakening, a weakening Palestinian Authority, a push to the, to the arms of the radical elements in the region. And, and we, I see the Israel, I see Israel is being sucked into the void in the in the West Bank because they are not co- they are not coordinating uh, many things are being done that were done in co- between the coordination of Israel for example if you are a Palestinian businessman and you wanted to go into Israel to have some business meetings you had you went to the Palestinian authority and you asked for a permission VIP permission to go in and they would and they pay, did the coordination with they Tobias. did the coordination with Israel and they gave and they charged you with uh, with a fee now the Palestinian authority does not coordinate so those businessmen are uh, are uh, approaching I- the Israeli military or the Minal Israeli the, the the civilian uh, right. the civilian uh, administration, administration the civilian administration in the West Bank they don't pay anything they get a, they get the the authorization and they go with and they go in. Palestinian uh, authority is not in the loop. And they're weakened by that because then, the, then, then that businessman realizes that it was simple to do and it was free. And so they are weakened. And of course, they don't, they, 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 they don't, and they, there's no coordination and they cut, the, they have problems with the salaries because of the, the tax revenue that we are collecting and they, don't, they wouldn't accept. So they are weakening. Are they not digging their own grave here? Um, yes, they are. But we, it's ours too because we are more and more sucked yeah. in to this void. And so this is where we want to go. This is, we want to administer, to, to administer the lives of two million Palestinians, two million Palestinians in the, in the West Bank. So, so I see that we are left with a much uh, more complicated uh, to resolve problem, Palestinian problems, even though, and I mean, the idea, the idea of Prime Minister Netanyahu, the original idea was that if we have normalization with the Arabs, once we have the normalization, I mean, he wants to change the order. Yeah, he wants the first stage, right. the first stage is to have normalization and then solve the Palestinians. And he said, okay, if we have all the Arabs, the Arabs will bring the Palestinians to the table and to promote the process. But I don't see that happen. The right. opposite they, they is happening. To be, they seem to be digging in even more into their hardline positions. And this is our problem. So, but, we, but we had the other problem. And let me play devil's advocate for a second here. And, and you know, traditionally, I've always been kind of want, until very recently, I've always been one to say, I can't imagine a solution other than the two-state solution. And yet every time we've come to the Palestinians, uh, you know, two, maybe three times in the past uh, now 20 years, they've rejected the best offers that we could give them. And what they're going to get from any Israeli government going forward is not even going to be close to what we were offered in 2008 with the Olmert plan. So 
we're kind of stuck in this limbo that says, okay, they're not accepting that. Um, so we're just going to move ahead and we flip it and we're going to normalize relations with the world. But now they're making their situation even worse. So are they pushing us into a scenario where we have no choice but to go in and, uh, I don't know, maybe we'll have to reoccupy and readminister the Palestinian lives? Is the Arab world going to get involved here? Um, you know, what's going to be the future if this dynamic continues? Okay. What's going to be the future? Uh, One state solution. And forget Hamas. What's going to be the future with... with the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. One state. One this state. is this is where we are heading because, like I said, uh, the Palestinian Authority is g- is getting weaker and weaker. We are getting su- we are sucked in more and more into the admi- to administer the lives of the Palestinian population. The Palestinian they saw what I mean. The Palestinian the young Palestinians they see around they look around and they and they see what the upheaval around the world. They don't want to be in this situation. They they experience the intifada and they, they they don't want the dire situation. So what do, what do they what will they ask? They ask well, well, okay. They they ask okay. We you don't want to give us uh, independence. We will be part of the of a one state solution. And the one state solution is gaining traction inside Palestinian. Uh, it has been for a while, but Israelis don't want the one state solution. Israelis, Israelis are it, not, and, and the majority of the Palestinians still don't want the one state solution. But we want. I mean. We don't have a strategy on the Palestinian issue. This is the problem to begin with. We don't have any strategy, but we have at least. I, I think we do, and that we just don't. We, we the kind of analysts, don't like it. No. What is the strategy? If you if you ask me, um, and, and you have to read between the lines because Netanyahu has never said this out loud. Okay. I think his goal and and the kind of the milieu around him is to push the Palestinians to a place where they will just accept, and, and I don't think it's realistic, but where they will accept. Um, autonomy plus, and, and give up on the idea of a state, and just enjoy their autonomy plus. Okay, is it uh, first of all? This is not a strategy. I mean, uh, this is a everything he's been doing for for his entire tenure has pushed in that direction. Again, I don't think it's realistic, but that seems to be the direction. Okay, but uh, from when I come, mm. from where I come, a strategy is that you you analyze the environment mm. and you analyze what I- what are your uh, uh, what are your uh, strengths and weaknesses, and uh, what are your objectives, long-term objectives, and how do and and you you have you choose some courses of action, and you choose one course of action that can bring you to the objective. But I don't think I don't see any. I mean, to have a vision, it's okay, but is it connected to reality? How do you get there? This is the strategy. And I don't see a strategy that leads you to the place uh, how to get there. You get to how other about, places. How about normalization with half the Arab world in, in one fell swoop it, all of a sudden? This is what I say. It doesn't solve the Palestinian problem. It doesn't solve the Palestinian problem that is here, not uh, 2,000 mm-hmm. miles away, 2,000 kilometers away. It's here. How do we deal with this? And we have, we, I think we have a vision. The vision is, the vision is we want to be a, a Jewish and democratic state. And I think the Palestinian problem is the, the Palestinian the, the direction that we are heading is threatening both objectives: the, our ability to stay democratic in a one-state solution. Uh, this is why the two-state solution is so important, even even to 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 maintain it, even if it's not feasible right now. No. But to maintain it on the table, it's important because the alternative is one state. And one state, e- either we are not Jewish, either we are not democratic. And uh, so this is the this is the problem. 
That's and, and I've been concerned. I've been concerned with growing voices in Israel who don't seem to be as concerned with Israel not being so democratic. I am, like I am concerned. I am concerned. It's not only the, of course, uh, the democracy here is not only a question of the Palestinian problem. Palestinian problem is a problem, is a part, is part of the problem, but the problem is wider about democracy in Israel. But this yeah. is for the next, uh, yeah. but let's wrap up with, um, kind of more of a personal take. You, you spent a good part of your career being, let's call it a specialist and, and another part of your career being a generalist. Um, and, and maybe we'll use this to, um, you know, uh, 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 Yeah, I didn't understand either. You've spent part of your career being uh, a generalist, looking at the region, looking at the international Ah, system. And you've spent other parts of your career being an area expert on the Palestinian issue, on, let's say, uh, Iran, let's say, on on the United States or whatever it is. Um, Looking back, do you think you should have gone more in one direction or more in another direction? Do you think people um, should be looking for that balance? Uh, people who maybe are starting to get into this kind of career of foreign policy and defense stuff, um, do, you, do you think it served you well um, kind of trying to strike a balance over the years between between deep diving into certain issues and then, and then zooming out in yes. other roles? I mean, this is, this is an excellent question. I like, I like the subject. You know, to, to, to start with, you know, the, there, is a, there is a tension here and there is a dilemma when you choose a career. I mean, the fact that I did both uh, during military service for 25 years, I'm happy about it. Because now I can think about the, the, the issue and I can give you a, a question, a, an answer based on experience. But, you know, the difference between the, the one who, generalize, who, who deals with the region as a whole, mm-hmm. with the general picture, this is the Renaissance man, okay? Right. He is the Renaissance man. He knows... He's, he knows little. He knows a little on many, many issues. Right. And the other, the, the other, the, the specialist who specializes on special area, he knows everything on a on a little. Right. Okay. And if you push this analogy, so the Renaissance man, he know nothing about everything. And the other guy, he knows everything about nothing. <laughs> uh, so, so this is the dilemma. And. Uh, and I think if you look at Twitter, if you deal, if you are a specialist in Twitter, I think oh it's, <laughs> I mean, if you specialize on a special, on a certain issue, like you are an expert on a Palestinian issue, it will be easier for you to, uh, to increase your followers. Uh, and if you deal, one day you deal with the F-35 and the other day, the other day you deal with the internet in Iran during uh, protests, uh, I mean, you are, you are less focused, and I think mm-hmm. it will be diff- it, it's more difficult. I think, and I think based on our discussion here, I think in order to understand what's going on in the Middle East, uh, you have to be, uh, you have to follow because it's, it's, you have three layers. The, the internal layer is the Palestinian problem, and, uh, and uh, the, our sec- immediate security problems. The second layer who shape reality is the regional layer. The regional input on the, the regional influences on our situation, and the third layer in the Middle East, and third influence on Israel is the international uh, involvement, international relations uh, that influences what's going on. And you cannot understand a problem today in the Middle East without covering, without trying to focus on the three layers. And this is what I, I try to do. Sometimes it's more difficult. Uh, it comes on the expense of some speciality on 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 on, 
uh, on a specific arena. Mm-hmm. So this is the tension, and I think uh, I, chose, I chose to be... To, to it's much more difficult to follow all the events all over the world all the time. And uh, it's easier to focus on, a, right. on a one subject. I like, and if you look at my military career, I was navigating between, between uh, I was the head of the Iranian desk and the Palestinian desk, and I also did uh, international desk covering all the issues. I was the head of the international arena. It means that you have to specialize on everything that's going on in every arena and the international uh, aspect. And I like the general. I like the whole. Ashalem, what we call in... Mm-hmm. in, in, uh, in the big picture. The big picture. Mm-hmm. I like the big picture and to draw conclusion based on the big picture than the other way around. Uh-huh. And another issue is... In, and another, uh, another part of my career, another uh, tension, you may call it. Not tension, but I was shifting between Intel position and planning position. I mean, what's going on and what, what, do, you, what do you want to do about about it. Yeah, I, I remember one of the first things you said to me when I came into the army, and, and you know, I think people outside of the, the system don't understand. Everyone thinks that, oh, you did the international affairs, you did Middle East, you're going to go into intelligence. And, and I came to discover that there's this whole thing called planning. And, and Udi is the one who introduced me to it. And he said, he, I remember you always said, it's way more interesting to figure out what we need to do rather than what's happening. Yeah, because you have to take into account the intelligence picture, what the reality, what's going on. And then, what do I do about it? What it's another about, layer. Right? And I like to navigate between both, and to do both layers. First of all, to understand what's going on, and second, to try and think what to do about it. Awesome. Last question. From your 25 years and from all the uh, really fascinating positions you've done, can you think of, maybe we're putting you on the spot here, but can you think of one issue, one thing you were involved in that, that you're allowed to talk about that most stands out in your mind after all these years? I cannot even I cannot even <laughs> uh, begin to count the the the, the adventures. Uh, I, I can give you an example. Uh, One where you you stopped I, I, and I, said, "Holy crap! I I Udi Evental am going to be influencing way more than I ever dreamed possible on this issue." I cannot get into specific, but uh, let me tell you, uh, I was very close to the Prime Minister, the current Prime Minister. I was uh, responsible in his office for the intelligence. You have the, in the United States uh, the, the report that Trump doesn't like to read every day, <laughs> the presidential daily brief. I was responsible for the presidential daily brief for three and a half years in the Prime Minister office. It's a... Uh, it's an uphill battle. Uh, I mean, it's, it's like, and, and once you are very close to the decision maker, especially in Israel, that we are, uh, our, our system is not organized as well as the American system is organized. But uh, even to, maybe today it's more similar with Trump, okay? <laughs> but uh, I mean, when you are very close to the decision maker, it's very, you find it sometimes e- not easy, but you have a very powerful leverage. For example, if, and, and you know what is the agenda of your uh, client. You know the agenda. You are very close. You get the information from all the agencies. And you know what bothers him. And it's very, it's very easy, for example, to come into his office and tell him, look, this is, we have this in the intelligence. And then he said, we, get me this guy. Get me this guy. You influence very immediately because get me the head of, uh, the, the head of Mossad. I, uh, you show him a piece of information and he said, look, I need to do something about it. 
get me here, get me. And, and, you're you, the one, you can, and you're the one who controls what information he's going to see at the end of the day. You're the filter, yes, right? Yes, you are the filter, and this is a huge responsibility. And I discovered that it's very fun to influence. You want to influence, and uh, you have the piece of information. You know this piece of information will... will uh, Trigger? Will trigger a yeah. response from, from, from the prime minister. And uh, so is it wise to... And then you have to have a lot of discretion and to say... You, you discover during three and a half years that you don't want to feed your client with stuff that you know that will trigger him into action or into something, and, but you, you start to think about what is important that he sees. What, uh, also disinformation, but you, but sometimes there is a tendency of, of people who are very close to the decision maker dealing with intelligence to give them what they want to hear. And uh, and this is very tempting. This is very very tempting to do that, and but uh, to find other issues and to give your client stuff that it ha- he hasn't thought about it about them and that you think they are important uh, and push them forward into the decision making process. I, I can tell you that when I was in the prime minister office, my I chose one issue that I th- I said this issue has to be dealt with has to be understood in a deeper way by the Prime Minister and his, his, and his, uh, his environment, and this was Gaza. Mm-hmm. Gaza was my project uh, when I was in service there, and I wanted to add another point with the relationship of a decision-maker. What is also very interesting when you are working, uh, I mean, Netanyahu, you can say uh, many things about him, but he's a very knowledgeable guy and uh, a thinker, a strategic thinker. I was amazed that sometimes I, I gave uh, some analysis to the, to, the, to, to the prime minister or any client in the intelligence uh, decision maker. Any decision maker, you give, the, you give him something that you think what the, the bottom lines, and sometimes you, you put forward the bottom lines. What, are the, what, what does it mean? And then to see he takes the same information and analyzes it in a very different way. And uh, his way, and sometimes it's this this interaction is very very interesting because you think you understand, and suddenly from a decision maker point of view, you see that there are many different angles that you haven't thought about, and this is a very interesting process. So this is two experiences that I share with you, but I tell you, I mean, this career that I had, I I couldn't have better career because both to contribute and to be contributed by the by the job. So I think But now you're starting a new path And you're going to be teaching here at the IDC Yeah, yes. what, what are you teaching now this uh, I'm coming going fall? To teach, uh, I'm going to teach a course A, a wor- workshop So I hope Corona doesn't stand in the way And I will be able to be uh, In front of in students front, In front of the student and not in front of your computer But uh, I'm going to talk I'm going to uh, to, sh- to open For the students It will be uh, second year uh, students for for the BA about uh, what is policy planning, and uh, because we are in the in the, this was my initiative here, we are in a, in a government uh, government school, Harrison uh, School of Government, and uh, w- some of the students will have government positions, and in a government position you have to understand, you have to know how to write a policy paper. Because you want to 
Influence. You want to influence and you want, uh, sometimes you are asked to. Your, your commander or your, uh, the decision maker, he wants to, or your, your minister, he has a problem. He said, tell me what to do about it. And you have to, how do you analyze a problem? So I will teach them how to write a, a policy paper, but not to really uh, write it, but how to think. How to approach, right. How to approach and how to think about a policy planning problem. And what is the, I will, we will start with strategy. How do you see strategic planning? And what's the difference between strategic planning and policy planning? And then we'll go, and I will do it. It will be based on my experience, and uh, it will, I hope it will be fun. What I'm planning is uh, the first uh, meeting will be will be on on uh, uh, terms and notions and theory. Uh, the second one I want to take the most classic, uh, the most classic case in history of policy planning, which is the Cuba missile crisis. The Cuban crisis. missile crisis, yeah. Cuban <laughs> missile crisis, and and you have uh, all the information because the XCOM, you know, the XCOM, the Executive uh, Committee for International Security, that was gathered. And collected by, and, and put uh, around the table by Kennedy, he taped them, you know. He taped them during discussions. And so, so, so they'll be reading the a lot of Graham there. Allison. Right? And they <laughs> did the classic, like the manual classic book for policy planning. Uh, you have the, the yeah. options, you have the objectives, and you, you make uh, the analysis. Get, right, how to get them to meet. Yeah, so we will do uh, the, second, uh, the second course, and then we will go into... Uh, actual problems. We will will deal with the nuclear Iran nuclear agreement with the, uh, with Gaza policy over Gaza. We will we will discuss those issues, but in a, in a, in a, in a way that we will learn how to analyze problems uh, and uh, like like we do in real life. Like we do so now, yeah. this is what I'm going to do, and some other other nice cases. And the last. Last course, I'm planning a war game, little war game or simulations that will help them. Fantastic. Uh, so this is the plan. Fun. And the the uh, not the Herzliya conference, but the digital conference is going to be when again? On the 10th of September. 10th of September. So anyone yes, listening can, who wants can. to watch this can can watch it online. And you put out a regular uh, analysis of the Middle East. How can people find that? They can they can go into the. Uh, into the website of the IPS, in, Institute for Policy and Strategy in the IDC, and uh, they they have to look spotlight Israel in the Middle East. This is what I write. They will find it. Uh, they will find it on the on the on the homepage. Uh, once they get into one, uh, yeah, right, and we'll put a link to that on our show notes so people can definitely. find that. I got to say, it really is. Uh, maybe I'm a little biased because I know you, but it really is one of one of the finer. Um, analysis pieces that comes out regularly on different events in the Middle East. It's succinct. It's two, three pages tops, uh, and it really is, it's able to capture and explain what's happening. Um, and if people want to follow you, how can they follow you on uh, social media? Yes, I'm on Twitter. Uh, Twitter and Facebook. Uh, Twitter, I put a lot of energy, but, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I put a lot of energy in Twitter, but uh, the results are... Uh, it doesn't I mean, always come back. It doesn't always come back. It yeah. takes time. I have 1,000 followers, but... Uh, not bad. It's not bad. Uh, but I, 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 I expected much more. I expected much more. But like I say, I mean, uh, strategic analysis, it's right. not very... In, on Twitter, it's not very right. sexy. People are looking for details or sensationalist things. Uh, yeah, so. more sensations and a lot of politics and, uh, you know... Uh, and I, I, I try to to tweet uh, a little bit with more depth, and this is not always. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of appeal, 
But this is what I do. It has, appeal, it has appeal to us on this show, that's for sure. Most definitely. Okay. Well, listen, we wish you all the best of luck in, uh, in, in your new endeavor here at the IDC with, uh, with the courses. I hope to, to, to God that, uh, this COVID garbage period that we're going through will be over as soon as possible so that we can guarantee that there will be students in the seats and not, uh, Benny doesn't like COVID. I'm, I'm against <laughs> COVID. <laughs> Uh, and look, and, and, I, and I wish you all the success with this uh, Juan style. I think it's a very nice, uh, you have a concept, it's a very nice uh, initiative, and uh, all it. the best with Thank that. Thank you. Appreciate it. And Kurt, I was happy to be your 10th or... You're what? number 9. I, I, I'm happy to be number 9. Number 9? Number 9. Number 9. And our first, our first geopolitical... Our first geopolitical guest. Okay, I hope you will have many more on we board. So too. Okay, I'm sure Take we care. will. Thank Ker- you, Colonel Udi Evental. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, thank you, Dan and Benny. Thank you. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in. And we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.